Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right, let us begin a quadrifecta of red cards that, well, obviously, much like every one of these cards in Alpha, they each have something noteworthy to say about them. The first one is Goblin Balloon Brigade. A single red mana gets you summon goblins. Red colon goblins gain flying ability until end of turn. Controller may not choose to make goblins fly after they have been blocked. And they are 1-1. There's a lot in that single activated ability there from a textual standpoint. This card is, in my opinion, deceptively good. This card is just really, really strong by alpha standards, by by cheap creature standards in alpha. And I think there are plenty of people who rightly appreciate this card, but I still think it's actually underappreciated within the context of alpha and maybe old school. I just, I have a lot of affinity, even though I'm not like a Goblins player at heart, I have a lot of affection for Goblin Balloon Brigade for many reasons. So, Kevin, this is the first Goblin we get to review. Yeah, a very of a short list. <laughs> of, a short, of a short list. A very important tribe in Magic. But there's only two Goblins, not in, in addition to the Goblin King in the entire set. Mm-hmm. So, there's Go- Goblin Balloon Brigade and Mons Goblin Raiders. Now, Mons Goblin Raiders is a common, and this is an uncommon. Um, one of the things that, that I think we haven't really touched on too much we have mentioned is you talked about the, what you call them, the Jeskai Lords? No, you call them the Grixis Lords. The Grixis Lords, Lords from Alpha, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Grixis Lords have very few things to lord over in Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> right? I mean, Lord of Atlantis has Murfolk of the Pearl Trident. That's it. Um, zombie Master has, what is it? Skate Zombies and Scavenging Ghoul. Is that even a zombie or is that Summon Ghoul? Uh, oh, I thought it had been eroded to a zombie. Let me double check. No, I'm talking about an alpha. Yeah, no, I know it. I uh, Just a moment. Scavenging ghoul is now a zombie by today's standards. It's a summoned ghoul in alpha, so... Yeah. Uh, I'd, so uh, in it alpha, wouldn't have been has, applied, yeah. Right, it has one one lord, one zombie to lord over. Yeah. Um, Goblin King has two, which is notable. Um, but Goblin Balloon Brigade is probably the best... What should we call them? Servant to these lords, do we call them? Uh, um, rank and file. Yeah, rank and file. There you go. <laughs> uh, um, so here's the thing. Look at the alpha text again. It says red colon goblins. I was gain. Flunk. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, in alpha league, it's interpreted literally. Meaning all goblins gain flying ability until end of turn. It's so efficient. Including, it's one red, every goblin in play gets flying. That's pretty awesome. For one red. That's a good card. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's a is. shame that Goblin King is not a goblin in Alpha. Wrong. In Alpha League, he is goblin. Wait. He's treated as a goblin. In Alpha yes, League, he is? because the text of it, the text on the Alpha card <clears throat> says summon goblin king. Oh, I see. I thought in the alpha context, a goblin king was different than a goblin. No. Uh, okay. It's still a goblin. So are you saying that in the alpha context, this is also the creature type king? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not realize that. I thought that the alpha league treated goblin king as a different thing no, than no, goblins. No, no, no. Okay. Goblin Go king on. is one of the top 10 cards in the, in, in creatures, summon creatures in the, in alpha. 
Oh, it is the lead cleric. Yeah, that's a really good creature if it says, pumps itself. Is a goblin and will give itself plus one, plus one, and mountain walk. Well, that puts it right <laughs> at the top of the list of the lords, then, right? Not even close. Definitely. Yeah, especially <laughs> yeah, when the other that, two uh, members of the tribe are one mana, one ones. I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a good curve. But hey, but we're not here to review Goblin King. Sorry. No. Well, we are. Well, we are actually here to do that. But we're going to do that. We can do them <laughs> together. Um, so, Goblin Monster Goblin Raiders is incredibly synergistic and alpha. Now, obviously, the intent was that you pay a red and just give it. You mean the balloon brigade. plus one plus one? Uh, sorry, the balloon brigade. Yeah. yeah. Um, is an uncommon. So you've got the 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 common goblin, the uncommon goblin, and the the rare goblin. Um, so the balloon brigade is quite an annoyance. Um, if you have an opponent that doesn't have mountains, if you have an opponent that has mountains, it's basically irrelevant, right? Oh yeah. Because once Goblin King comes down, oh yeah, this is going to be two two mountain walk. Hopefully you can get a second king, and these things get really large. Um, <laughs> with two kings, the <laughs> each king is a four-four with mountain walk. It's pretty unreal. That is unreal. Um, but uh, yeah, the Goblin Balloon Brigade is is definitely definitely the second best goblin in Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so uh, I love this card. We've already touched on a number of the reasons why. I have some thoughts, though. Here's another one. What is going on in this art? So, obviously, you've got some goblins and they're in hot air balloons. And they're a brigade of them. And the ones in the balloons appear to be dropping stuff on the people below them, right? That's not... That sounds like a goblin-y thing to do. Except look at who's below them. It's other goblins. (laughs) (laughs) So... They're just attacking their own people. Like, they got in these balloons, and then they couldn't resist just dropping stuff on the people who had just helped them into the balloons, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. The other thing is that um, the second sentence of this activated ability, and I'm not going to go deep on this, but the effect of this, I would interpret, it says, controller may not choose to make goblins fly after they have been blocked. My under- My expectation is that that was intended to be reminder text. Like... After I've blocked these with a grizzly bear, you can't then say, oh, I'm going to give it flying and have it be unblocked, right? The practical upshot of it, though, is that that sentence, if you take it out of context, would, by today's standards, be translated into activate this ability only before blockers are declared. Something like that, right? And so I think it's really interesting just the way we've chosen to interpret certain things in alpha very literally and chosen to interpret many things like this in context because... I mean, I would not be surprised if there was a, an interpretation of this card in modern day that said you can't activate this ability after blockers are declared, even though it doesn't actually function very for any particular purpose. Yeah. It's still there. It's kind of like the clone ability, right? You can't cast it if there's no creature in play. Well, the point of that was to be clarifying, right? But then it has an actual function in 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 corner cases. So anyway. Like I said, I don't want to drain that. I think that this card is a, a comedy of errors, so to speak, that are all really small errors. Like, the art is hilarious. It's very goblin-y. I'm not saying it's an error. I'm just saying it's it's hilarious in what it's trying to accomplish. The, yeah. the activated ability having two noteworthy errors that have both been smoothed out over time in a way that many other alpha errors <laughs> haven't been smoothed out, right? 
combined yeah. with the interaction, the unintended interaction with Goblin King. Not, these interact with Goblin King the way they were meant to, but the point is the fact that Goblin King is way better than it's supposed to be in the alpha context. I just think it's hilarious how many small little noteworthy things add up to how effective this card is in the alpha so, context, especially. I just want to say, I don't I think it. that the art is as awkward. It is equally as comedic as you said, but I think I think it's a kind of a, dy- a dynamic, almost comic book art, you know, and that there's a lot going on. There's a lot of dynas- dynamicism oh, to yeah. the art. It's very evocative. Know? Yeah, but it's it's... What I'm getting at is I think the art has a lot of activity. It's a little bit like a, a you know a miniature well, where's Waldo and that there's like a lot going on. <laughs> yep. Which actually I like a lot going on if the image is fairly simple and it's and it's reinforcing the main theme. Which and it's I feel reinforced like reinforced also with the flavor text too, which is funny. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, I, I so think it contributes positively to the card. I just think it's funny that the goblins are dropping the stuff. Is on this themselves. an artist that has any other work in Alpha? <laughs> Yeah, but not much. I actually was looking at that while you were talking. Andy Russo has exactly one other card in Alpha, and it's Rock of Courages. Uh, and then he did a, a <laughs> several Legends in Legends and a couple things in, in Alliances, and that was it. So Andy had a short career in Magic, but a couple of really noteworthy things in Legends. Where we were reviewing Legends, we'd be talking about Bartel Runax, Barktooth Warbeard, Jacques Levere, Rasputin Dreamweaver, like... Vivictus Asmati, lots wow, of that's super lots cool. of bangers. Yeah, Vivictus Asmati has yeah. amazing art, as I recall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Andy did some um, some classic stuff in the short. That's the one. Of cards. That's the dragon with the fish face, right? <laughs> I guess yes, that is accurate. <laughs> um, so Goblin King, I, I just think is immensely powerful. I think it's one of the best, the best top ten best creatures in Alpha League. Let me let me read because it Mount- because sure where. Wor- We've already alluded to it, but it's one RR, summon Goblin King. Goblins in play gain Mountain Walk and plus one, plus one, while this card remains in play. And it is natively a 2-2, but as Steve was just describing, if its ability applies to itself, which the alpha verbiage seems to suggest... Goblins has such a storied history in Magic. I remember when Legacy was created as a format, Goblins was almost immediately one of the best decks. With yeah. Goblin Lackey, Goblin Ringleader, Goblin War Chief, you know, yeah. um, Siege Gang Commander. Siege Gang Commander. I, my sense is that like Goblins is still an archetype, a fringe archetype in Legacy. Um, Goblins is relevant and, in the, the historic family uh, format that just had the Mythic Championship last weekend. Really, there was one copy in the top eight. Well, thanks to yeah, Muxus. Muxus is super yeah. obnoxious. It's like it's like <laughs> Goblin Ringleader on steroids, right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's like yeah, you want to put all those in play too? Sure. <laughs> yeah, God, <laughs> Goblin Matron. Um, yeah, incredibly powerful. I mean, and Goblin I, Goblin King. I felt like really lasted a long time in Goblins. If I'm not mistaken, it was probably in some of those earlier edition versions, legacy versions of Goblins, which is remarkable yeah, for a remarkable. lord in in Alpha. Yeah, you know. Yeah, ironically, the same was true right. for yeah. Lord of Atlantis. Yeah, Lord of Atlantis is we'll a long tale. So, so Goblin King was a card that's continued to see play. Now, it's a tri- very tribal card. You need to build around it. Um, and if you have the card pool to build around it, the problem was in constructed magic. Before, with the inauguration of the first Ben and restricted list and and floor rules and the four card cap, you didn't really have that until you get to the dark and really fallen empires, when you get a little bit more power around goblins and goblin grenade 
being a, a great finisher. Goblin Grenade <laughs> for was goblins. such a coup for magic. I mean, people were so excited by that card. It was so powerful and fun <laughs> and exciting. And yeah. I just remember all the all the excitement and the the initial play and the various ways that Goblin Definitely Grenade Definitely one of manifest. the best cards from Fallen uh, Empire. A, cool a lackluster set. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, Goblins is kind of an enduring tribe in the history of magic, and I'm trying to remember if anyone had it. You know what? Didn't didn't Goblins do? Didn't it spike a couple of Star City Games Power Nine events? If I'm not mistaken, I, in fact, I think it did. I don't remember, but that wouldn't surprise me. I remember, I remember thinking of Goblins as a fringe vintage archetype for a long time, and only people who were bold or or I don't know, had nefarious goals in life with it <laughs> to an event. So, so Kevin, I found a couple. So Mike Zahn won the the May twenty first, two thousand five. This was the Star City Games Power Nine event. This was the Shooting Stars event that you went to. Oh yeah, he won that, that event in that it was the largest Star City Games Power Nine event. I did not remember and, that that was won yeah. by Goblins. Now I'm looking here. It's Lackey, Vandal, Pile Driver, Recruiter, Matron, Incinerator, Sharpshooter, War Chief, Ringleader. CGN Commander, Kiki Jiki, and Food Chain. Oh, that was so Food Chain. So it was a combo Chain finish. Goblins. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't see a... I do not, unfortunately, see a... Um, sorry, Kevin. That was the event before the Shooting Stars event. It was won by Goblins. Oh, okay. That was Star City Games 7. Okay. So 8 eight was won by Hugo Rivard playing uh, Control Slaver. Um, I also think Goblins won... I'm pretty sure Goblins won at least one, one and uh, Waterbury. I'm not going to pull up the deck list, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> a, a variant one, one as well. So, goblins is a powerful tribe that has endured, and eventually, from time to time, does pretty well. Yep. In any format that it can function in, it seems like a relevant player. I forgot that pile driver was one of the key because grief. it was protection from blue. Yeah. And then it got plus two, plus zero. I wonder if that's good enough for contemporary legacy. I don't think. Let me so. pull up a legacy. Contemporary Legacy is, a leg- has a lot of interaction, and there's a lot of downward pressure on creatures. So yeah. I, I don't so think here's, so, but let's I could see. be mistaken. I'm looking. It looks like there's quite a few. Wow, even this month, Kevin. So um, I'll just pull this one from September. Here's a Goblins deck. Legacy. It's Incinerator, Chain Whirler, Crater Maker, Lackey, Matron, Pile Driver. Two Pile Drivers, two Ringleader, two War Chief, Mog. War Marshal, Munitions Expert, Muxus, <laughs> Skirk Prospector, that one's low power, Sling, Sling Gang Lieutenant, I don't even know what that one is. Are any of these lords? I don't think no, they are. No, they're not. The Prospector's there to power fact, out Muxus wow. since it costs six. And then the Sling Gang yeah. is one, it's a four mana black one that puts, I think, two goblin tokens into play and you can sack them to do damage. Wow. Wow, so it's this like one a mini Siege Gang Commander. A Legacy League. It says MTGO Legacy League. I don't know what that means. Is is that that's the same because it has the, first through eighth? No, but it has first through eighth place. Ah, uh, that's probably oh, just okay. MTG. Yeah, this one that went five zero. Yeah, there's a little bit. Well, there different. you go, Muxus Goblins. Yeah, and still a thing. <laughs> but no, with no, <laughs> with zero lords these days. Well, that just goes to oh, show right. you that the the effects of lords and tribal synergies in Magic have graduated from just power and toughness to things that generate cards and or mana advantage, right? That deck is filled with things that allow goblins to cheat on mana and Lackey and Prospector and Muxus, right? And as well as things that give card advantage like Ringleader and the things that produce tokens 
And so the notion of just pumping power and toughness has gone by the wayside in favor of those other effects. All right. There's one other thing I want to point out too, and that's the art. So the art on Goblin King is, it's it's just fantastic art, right? So good. And I like the fact that it is in the, ostensibly this king is in the dark or in a dark setting, but with light uh, reflected on both sides of its body. So you see light that looks like it's firelight on the left. And then light on the right that looks like it might be closer to sunlight or some other reflected light. I think that's interesting. It's a little bit of a Tolkien-esque reference to the fact that the goblins live underground. The art is just so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's very Drew Tucker-esque. It's a little more well-defined for my Drew Tucker taste. But uh, it does have some nice abstract imagery in the background. Even the figure is weirdly weirdly rendered. I mean, (laughs) the the mouth, I guess. I mean, yeah. The, it the has stalactites. Some, it has some weird proportions. I'll give you that. Yeah. Eh, yeah, it's not quite Drew Tucker, but... <laughs> All right, let's move on cool. next to another red card. And another, indeed, another pairing of red cards that are noteworthy in their pairing, I think. This one is Granite Gargoyle. For two red, you get Summon Gargoyle. It says simply, flying, semicolon, red, colon, plus zero, plus one until end of turn. And it's a 2-2. Granite Gargoyle is part of a triad in Alpha that's pretty famous, in my opinion. And that is three mana red creatures that are two red in their casting cost and two twos. And they span common, uncommon, and rare. And this is the rare one. The other two are Uthden Troll and and, uh, uh, Grey Ogre, which we'll get to next. So... This forms... The, uh, Granite Gargoyle is an interesting case, in my opinion, because while red is not... Uh, I'm sorry, where red has flying in multiple cases in alpha, the efficiency of this particular card, I think, is noteworthy. Because Goblin Bloom Brigade, which we just reviewed, requires mana to jump up into the air. Then there's Rock of Courages, which is just a 3-3 three, three for 4, matches up with Phantom Monster. And then there's, obviously, Shivan Dragon. Now, this one being a three-mana flyer is actually unusual for red in modern yes. uh, by modern standards. Red doesn't get cheap flyers anymore. And so it's noteworthy to me that they strongly committed to red as the secondary flying color in alpha in the form of creatures across all rarities, mm-hmm. whereas blue is obviously the more pro- prominent flying color and also has the flying enablers like jump and flight. But this is just an incredibly efficient red flyer. And the fact that this trades profitably with a hypnotic specter, I think, is really noteworthy in the purely alpha context. And also of note is the fact that this has an activated ability to pump power and toughness. And we didn't talk about it much vis-a-vis fire breathing and frozen shade. But this one actually adds the language until end of turn, which frozen shade and fire breathing lack in addition to others. Like, for example, Blessing. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Blessing has the until end of turn one. What's the other one that doesn't have it? It must be one of the elementals. Anyway, it's not a given in the alpha context that until end of turn is written there. And you could make a case through a pure literal reading that uh, it sets a precedent for the other effects. But I'll let you talk to that. Well, I don't think there's actually much to add to what you said. I think it's um, it's 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 clarified here and it's not ambiguous. Um I think what's weird about this card, Kevin. By the way, the artwork is awesome. It oh, yeah. reminds me of the of the figurine in Ghostbusters. <laughs> Very much uh, so. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. But what what I think is interesting is that that the 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 pumping from toughness is really what's unique about this card. Oh yeah. I forgot in to mention red. that completely. In red. <laughs> the inverse of fire breathing <laughs> and it stands out for that reason yeah. within alpha. Uh Steve, what do you make of the fact that red clearly owns the power and uh, toughness pumping abilities in alpha between Dragon Whelp, Fire Breathing, Granite Cargoyle, Shiv and Dragon, and Rock Hydra, as well as Wall of Fire. It has, a, it has the vast majority. But White has Holy Armor, which pumps toughness like Granite Gargoyle does, and then White has Blessing. Yeah, We touched on this a bit with Blessing, but I feel like there's something to the fact that White, or that Red evokes temporary advantage, which echoes the fact that Dark Ritual was shifted into Red later on in Magic's design. Mm-hmm. But why why does white have blessing to begin with? I don't with? I mean I just <laughs> I don't, don't get know. that. I can't I can't really tell you honestly. In the context of all these things, I don't just don't get why white has blessing. Well, anyway, I know you you'd be speculating I guess just to answer any further, but the simple truth is is that granite gargoyle is just a heavily efficient threat and it stands out as odd in the alpha context and in the red context and the only thing uh, the only red thing in alpha that pumps toughness, everything else just pumps power. And I don't know why they did that. I have a feeling it's a little bit of a top-down design vis-a-vis being a gargoyle. But in, if yeah. that's true, I don't know why this is a red card and not a white one. But I, I'm neither here nor there. But either way, the, the, the triumvirate of creatures that I referred to, I think, are meant to evoke some of Richard Garfield's feelings about rarity. Because it's undeniable that Grey Ogre is the basic form of this effect. That's the next card we're going to review. It gets upgraded at Uncommon to Uthden Troll, which gains regeneration. And then it gets upgraded again to Granite Gargoyle at Rare, which gains two abilities. <laughs> Flying and, and pumping from pumping yeah. toughness. Well, let's talk about Grey Ogre, Ogre then. Well, there's not too much to say. You know, it's a 2R for a well, it's the Summon Ogre <laughs> as a 2-2. Two, two. Yeah, and there's a reason why we refer to all creatures in this model for the rest of time as Grey Ogres. And it's uh, that's just there's all there there is to it really. There's no there's no ogre synergies in Alpha, so it was this card is purposefully <laughs> not a goblin, for example, which it very could defensively have been. It's not even an orc where it, there's another orc in Alpha. <laughs> it's not a giant or a minotaur, right? There's just no synergies with this card in Alpha, uh, Gauntlet of Might notwithstanding, and so it's just kind of a freestanding definition of what it is to be a vanilla creature. And it's in comparison to green, where the freestanding definition of a vanilla creature costs one Grizzly. less mana. Yeah. And so it's a statement of principle, I think, about the definition of creatures. So it's noteworthy from, from that standpoint. But it's just really interesting that it's part of this cycle that just clearly articulates what rarity means in the Powerfully context of so. alpha and subsequently magic. It's really interesting that it, it's a card with such a formative effect on all those elements of the game, with respect to rarity and what a vanilla creature is, and how colors relate, and where red's position in the pie, and all that jazz. Yet, it's the kind of card that I would never play if I could ever help it, and have never, I've <laughs> yeah. never voluntarily cast a gray ogre. You know, <laughs> it's it's. Ironic yeah. that way. Like I've cast plenty of grizzly bears. I don't think there's much more to say about it. I think because we're very close to grizzly bear, so let's let's move on ahead. Let's chug on forward. That's true. To get to grizzly. So bear. um, 
in between Grey Ogre and Grizzly, where it is Green Ward, which we don't really need to discuss. Probably we the worst the whole ward. ward cycle. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. talked about that extensively. <laughs> That's right. So I am just going to move on to Grizzly Bear, and there's not much to Grizzly Bear for the reasons we've just stated. It's 1G, summon bears. It's a 2-2. Two, two. And, uh, you know, don't try to outrun them, says the uh, says the flavor text. <laughs> and so, as I already said, the interesting thing about grizzly bears is not any... It's, it's the meta aspects of it. Because there are a couple yes. of... There are several vanilla creatures in Alpha. Um, but the noteworthy things for the purposes of, the, of this conversation are the ones that are smaller than the uncommons, Right. So we're not talking about air element. Well, air elemental is not vanilla, but we're, we're not talking about the fire elementals of the world, which are big and can tangle with the other uncommons in the world. We're talking about there are 15 truly vanilla creatures in the set. And if you order them by converted mana cost, which is what you do if you're analyzing, <laughs> you know, how sets play out in Savannah limited. Lions. Yeah, there's three one drops. The Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, the Mons Goblin Raiders, which play into the the tribal themes. Then there's Savannah Lions, which is very noteworthy and cements white as the aggressive weenie color. Sans uh, tribal synergies. Then there's only a single two mana vanilla creature in the set and it's Grizzly Grizzly Bear. Bear. Yeah. And it's so it's going though. I want to hear the rest. Well, it sets the stage because the next ones are all um, three mana ones. There's two in red, Grey Ogre and Hurlian Minotaur, which is another comparison that works that we can talk about. Then there's Pearl Unicorn in white and Skade Zombies in black. Then there's no uh, blue three mana vanilla creatures. In fact, you don't get a three mana, or sorry, a vanilla creature in blue until five. Next, there's Hill Giant, which we've talked about already, is the the, the titular example of its archetype too over the course of history. Then the two red elementals, Earth and Fire, Iron Root Tree Folk, which we have yet to get to, but it's five mana three five in green. Then Water Elemental, Crawl Worm, and Obsidianus Golem. <laughs> so what, what this tells you is that there's clearly several yeah. signposts here. The Jeskai colors own the, the true weenie strategies, the one mana creatures, but the red and blue ones, are they, they need tribal synergies to make them worthwhile. Savannah Alliance can stand on its own, and, es- and especially in the context of Crusade. But Grizzly Bears cements green as the color of the cheapest vanilla effects and how unlike either blue or red or white or black, you should be able to get a 2-2 for two mana in green. And that cements green as the color of just larger creatures at, at all stages, basically, of the mana pot, of the, 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 at all stages of the mana curve, except on one, which is ironic. You could be understood if you would say maybe Savannah Lions should have been a green in alpha and maybe something else should have been um, taken Scrib Sprites, for example. And mm-hmm. Arabian Nights obviously did a little bit to to readjust this when they put uh, flying men at common and and messed up the the common creature curve. But this really cements green for what it does. It really puts the gray ogre, pearl unicorn, scathe zombies of the set in contrast. Right, green is the creature color, and every other color is playing catch up really at the the common stage. And then it sets up the it really cements red actually as the the larger common creature color, which is noteworthy in comparison to Crawworm at 6-4. We talked about Crawworm, obviously, earlier and how noteworthy it is that common green gets the biggest creature. 
So there's just a lot of signposts here that Grizzly Bears really points to and and lays out for the whole set. Yeah. No, I I think you – is this, by the way, the first flavor text that refers to Dominia? Oh, that's an interesting first, question. I don't know the answer to that. As the, a specific um, fantasy locale. I mean, it's in the alpha well, – let me double-check that. <laughs> Warzel's Tale is in the alpha rulebook, but I don't know that actually mentions Dominia. Let me double-check. It's actually not the first. We skipped over the first one, but there's only two. We skipped over the first one because it was Demonic Hordes. Demonic Hordes reads, uh, created to destroy Dominia, demons can sometimes be bent to a more focused purpose. <laughs> and then Grizzly Bears <laughs> says, don't try to outrun one of Dominia's grizzlies. It'll catch you, knock you down, and eat you. Of course, you could run up a tree. In that case, you'll get a nice view before it knocks the tree down and eats you. <laughs> so hmm. there's only those two references to Dominia in the flavor text in Alpha. And, of course, there's just some iconic Jeff Mangus art here that oh, yeah. we've we've discussed the salient features of Jeff Mangus art already in this review. But this is just another one that uses his, I would say, common color scheme, the grays and the blues and the whites. And also, he does a pretty good job, as we've alluded to, in putting his subject in a context and this one is no this one's no different in fact i like this one a lot because it puts the bears in the context of uh, a river or a river delta yeah and the fact that this is the way grizzlies hunt for salmon and there's actually some looks like a yeah. some fish carcass under the the paw of the grizzly here yeah, yeah it's actually a really good uh, context setting for a bear it's really satisfying i didn't mention this i didn't mention this when we brought mangas up before but when magic came out comic books were very popular in comic book art, especially kind of like the hyper-delineated, uh, cross-hatch style mm. comic book art, you know, was very, very popular. Sure. And Mengus's style is very much the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's almost impressionistic. Such a departure from that, yeah. Yeah, such a departure. And... um it's almost, in fact, the opposite because his art is is almost impressionistic. It's very blocky. It's not hyper delineated. It's much more textured, much more uh, color and brushwork. You know what I mean, rather than the hyper fine line. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I think his art has aged incredibly well compared to many others. I mean, not just because he's done such iconic stuff like Moat and Bizarre Baghdad, but just that style has fared well, right? Because it it almost looks better in a fantasy context than the hyper de- hyper you know delineated you know uh ink line because it it's it leaves a stronger impression it's maybe less figurative but it works better for the colors and the texture of the art than if you're trying to get like work you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like look for example at some of melissa benson's work she has a much finer line you know what i mean oh, yeah. but the if just looking at the grizzly bears like the grizzly bear itself the color and the the texture of the fur, all of that is so much more because of his brushwork, right? Totally. If you did a fine line, you don't get that in in the same way. So, I think Mengus is one of those artists in the original twenty five that's really aged well. Yeah, I love it, and I think I've heard some people criticize his work, especially in Alpha, for being uh, very monochromatic. And I would say that it's definitely true that the the bulk of his work. You can identify just on its color scheme, but in my opinion, that is not a negative. 
it seems his use of color i think is appropriate in every case and it doesn't doesn't look forced and each piece has its own appropriate setting and appropriate little tweaks to the style like the grizzly bear example yes the fur texture is fantastic at the same time his water texture is incredibly good like the the little splashes of water in front of the bear are just yeah. they're so convincing to me as as yeah. in contrast to the sky and the mountains in the distance and the trees yeah i'm i'm with you he he does a, just a lot with a little in my opinion Okay, it's funny that we just recently got off of a series of red cards that had so much in common with the goblins and the the gray ogres and their variants. Now we've got two white cards that are very much in common. There are lots of common DNA here. The first is Guardian Angel. So for Guardian Angel, and the one after it is Healing Set, in case you didn't know. For Guardian Angel, the alpha wording is X white. It's an instant. Prevent X damage from being dealt to any one target. Any further damage to the same target this turn can be canceled by spending one mana per point of damage to be canceled. <laughs> I love the word canceled. I know. <laughs> Prevented. This is, um, it's a really, I have to be honest, of all the things going on in Alpha, I think this is actually a pretty ambitious design in terms of trying to get it to work within the rules. I... The fact that it sets up a shield and then you can just keep paying is also a really interesting uh, strategic element because do you see any reason why X should be anything greater than zero when you cast this spell? <laughs> like, why is this an X spell and then it gives you the ability to just increase X over the rest of the turn? Why would you ever spend X mana on it to begin with? Well, and, isn't it unless you're passing you phases, have- I guess. So you can pay this for yeah, just W. You can pay W where X equals zero. Prevent the next zero damage that would be dealt to any target this turn. And then until the rest of the turn, you can pay a colorless anytime right. you want to... Anytime you can cast I an think, instant, it says it, it, it to prevent as, the damage. Well, as written, you're clearly correct. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think as intended, there's a different, a different story here. What's the gamma version of this indicate? Interestingly, the gamma version doesn't have all that extra functionality. The gamma version just says prevent X damage from being dealt to any target. They actually powered it up between gamma and alpha, which is cool. <laughs> I like seeing, seeing, seeing some <laughs> things be powered up, and we've seen a few of them already. But I just find it interesting that the, the design they landed on here means there's no reason to put X mana into this. The, I, guess, I guess if you had a whole bunch of mana floating for whatever reason, and you needed to cast this and then move on to subsequent phases of the turn... It does make some sense to put a bunch into X right now and then save some for later, maybe. So I guess there is a use case for it. But it's really interesting to me in the way that it's designed such that, you know, even in that case, you could still just pay the spell for X equals zero and then put as much mana as you want to prevent right now. It's so interesting. Yeah, I'm trying. So there is one possible reason why you would want to pay X. Mm -hmm. So under the alpha rules, spells resolve simultaneously. So if Mm. you were to pull... So if you were to play this spell and your opponent says it resolves, then there may not be an actual window for you to then pay further additional mana, depending how you interpret the, the oh. alpha rules. Yeah, okay, I see your point. It, it, if, you're, if you play a lightning, sorry, if your opponent plays a lightning bolt on your creature, you play this to protect it. You can't just pay this for zero and then get another opportunity to protect from the lightning bolt. Right. Your spell has resolved and their bolt has resolved. I see your point. Yes, so in the, the alpha context... You make a fair point. Yep. It's just a shame that subsequently the fact that this is an X spell is pretty lost in the practice the way it's designed. 
it still matters. Like if you had a fork, you you would pay some value into X to fork it, right? There's still there are corner <laughs> cases, of course. Yeah, that's that's very odd. I don't think I'd ever queued into the alpha wording like you did because, <laughs> frankly, you know, by the time I got to this, it was either un- unlimited or revised, <laughs> and by that there- point, the wording had been substantially. Well, it's on up, a, upgraded, I assume. That's true. It's on a short list of spells that create a delayed, either triggered or activated like ability. Yeah, that will give you an effect for some period of time, the until the end of turn, usually. that There's not a lot of spells that do that. Um, I'm trying to think. There was one from <laughs> there was one from Mirage that famously got got kind of bounced around in its oracle readings for a long time. Torrent of Lava, that's the one. It's it's an X spell. XRR, it's a sorcery. It deals X damage to each creature with flying, but it has this rider. As long as Torrent of Lava is on the stack, each creature has tap, prevent the next one damage that will be dealt to this creature by Torrent of Lava. So it, it wow. gives creatures an ability only for the duration of being on the stack, which is a hilarious implementation and, and way overcomplicated. Uh, it's a very, very, very top-down design. I'm not saying Guardian God. Angel is quite that complicated, but that's I, the pinnacle of that effect in my eyes. Can you double check this for me? Because I think I'm looking at the uh, revised version of this, and it has identical text to Alpha. Uh, Guardian Angel, you mean? Yes. Uh, sorry. So the revised wording is a prevent X damage from being dealt to any one target. Any further damage to the same target this turn can be canceled by spending one mana per point of damage to be canceled. That's the same. It's the same wording. You're right. What's the difference? Um, the alpha wording says any further damage to the same target. Yeah. One mana per point of damage to be canceled. Yep. It's exactly the same. It isn't it amazing how such a terrible wording persisted all the way to alpha. I'm sorry, all the way to revised. I, I don't believe that. Yeah. And that was the final printing of this card, by the way. So there is no. <laughs> it didn't, even, no it didn't even make it to fourth edition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Oracle. The Oracle works just like you said. The Oracle is much more Until elegant. End of turn. Yeah. You may pay one at any time. I don't think I ever realized that until you just pointed it out. This it's card really is much weird. better than I thought. Yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's, it's just dis- way more powerful than just X prevent damage. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more flexible. The more you know. And it, it can produce some powerful tactical advantages and, and put your opponent in a really tough spot, right? If they needed... For example, if you're playing against red, where in the alpha context, most of their removal is damage-based... It puts them in a really tough spot if they wanted to try and double up to kill a thing, right? Two lightning bolts, etc., to kill a thing, or combat plus lightning bolt. This card really stands in the way of that very well. Yeah, it's bizarre. That having been said, have you ever cast this spell? I have no recollection. You know, it's very possible I played it out of like a revised starter or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. But even I remember, I remember pulling one of these early in my revised days and. I mean, it's common, so they were all over the place. This was one of those cards that was just trash to me. I would just throw it on a pile whenever I opened one. Did, did we all just it. underestimate it? <laughs> did we all just... Well, <laughs> I guess... Collectively? Collectively, we, we it, it may be a little better than we thought. I think that's a fair way to assess the thing. But at the same time, it's still just damage prevention, and it's not an efficient way of doing it, right? Scaling up damage prevention at the same rate that red scales up right. damage is inherently inferior. Just and by it's, definition. It's to a single target, so... That too. If it's a, the, the target is a creature, it's unlikely to be targeted again, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> That's right. In order to make this card any good, you, you would have to, I think, make it more broadly applicable. It would have to protect all your creatures, for example, or multiple targets somehow, 
or it would have to present more damage than the mana you put in you know for each mana you put in it prevents two damage or something like that damage prevention is just so inherently weak and by the way the, today's implementation of this kind of thing very frequently doesn't prevent a, a given amount of damage it just prevents all damage right prevent all damage to right. this from that or whatever or just straight up protection or indestructible like this effect has gotten a lot more uh, f- powerful and more absolute than modern design I think we should move on to the next card, Steve, by yeah. comparison, right? Because the next card is Healing well, before, Staff. Actually, before we do, we should note that the art on Guardian Angel is paired with Paralyze. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, the, the angelic character on Guardian Angel by Ensign Maddox is casting a, an energy beam of sort down off to the side <laughs> of the card. And then if you hold that up next to Paralyze, you can see that same beam affecting the creature. And, and this I, is one of at least three artistic pairings in Alpha yeah. that I'm aware of. Thank you for bringing that up. I would have skipped that. Interesting, too, that the effect of the the angel's beam here has nothing to do with damage prevention, right? It's tapping a creature and keeping it tapped, which would have been a much more powerful effect, right? <laughs> if this guardian angel had actually had the effect of Paralyze, it would have been a way better card, much like Frost Links and its ilk, which are still printed today. So healing salve, healing salve needs no introduction, right? The, the alpha wording for healing salve is simply, it's it's W instant, gain three life, or prevent up to three damage from being dealt to a single target. Pretty elegant wording. And we've alluded to it already in a number of handful of times, right? It's one of the boon cycles, uh, arguably the weakest one by a lot of measures. At the same time, it's far more efficient on a mana to effect ratio than Guardian Angel is, right? Which says something about Guardian uh, Angel. Right. And... This kind of effect, so Healing Sav was has been printed a number of times. Like it was printed in the, the ABU revised fourth edition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, printed with first the first new art that it got was in Mirage, which is wild. It wasn't in Ice wow. Age, wasn't in Tempest, but it was in Mirage and Saga, and then it was in what fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, which means it's legal in Modern, and then a couple of reprints thereafter. But the last. The last legit printing that made it legal in a format was 8th edition, which is what makes it legal in modern. So this is followed a pretty common trajectory, right, of cards that we thought, that R&D thought were staples of the game, so to speak, and then have learned better since then. <laughs> Hasn't been reprinted since 8th hmm. edition. This is another one of those it, ones that where the alpha wording is actually pretty spot on. It's not too bad. Yeah, it's not... I mean, it's, it's a modal, modal spell. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, I think how much weaker this is than the other boon. I mean it's it's just so far behind the other ones. It's it's a bit astonishing. It's, it really is. And I we don't I don't think we need to reiterate that since we've covered the other boons uh, pretty thoroughly already uh, in circumspect manner in some cases. But yeah, it's undoubtable. I mean this one just doesn't compare at all. Uh it's in Obviously, fifth, it's in fifth place by a mile. They just to keep everything at three. The the thematic was more important than balancing them by power. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting, um, balancing them by power, keeping the theme at three, the gamma version of Healing Sav doesn't let you prevent damage. The gamma version of Healing Sav is just gain three life. So, <laughs> the you know, obviously the, uh, the thematic emphasis was there in force in gamma, and they realized even then that it it's was just, just way underpowered. Not powerful enough. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's a real shame. I mean, can you think of a way to make Healing Sav a relevant card like in the alpha context, if you're trying to balance things better than they did, obviously there's just nothing to be done with ancestral recall. You can't you, you can't cost that card the way it is. It has to cost four mana or whatever. But 
Is there anything you can do in a white context for one white mana at instant that involves the number three that you can think of in alpha? Like (laughs) it could be put three one one white soldiers into play, right? That's not bad. That would be pretty efficient for one mana. That would be very good for one mana. And that would be in a white color pie context. Preventing damage and gaining life just for threes um, just need not apply, basically. You know what makes me laugh is Pollen Remedy. Pollen Remedy. What about it? Well, it, it's prevent the next three damage to be dealt, divided any number, divided among any number of targets. That might be the trick. Oh, the power, yeah. The power up. Pollen Remedy from, what is that, Plane Chase? Plane, plane Shift. Sh- plane Shift, excuse me. And it has yeah. Kicker Sacrifice a Land. So if you kick it, it prevents six. But That's a good idea. But if you're, you're right. able to divide it, you could, it could potentially be a three for one. That's right. It makes right? combat math a lot harder for your opponent than that. Right. Yeah, if your opponent has, I mean, in fact, then it would be, I think, much more powerful because, you know, you've got three Lenoir Elves lined up against three Lenoir Elves. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a three for one. You're very much right, I think. Uh, that would be a more relevant card in limited play today by a long shot. Yeah, you're right. That's really cool. <laughs> and depending on the design of the set, how the creature's power and toughness um, matched up commonly, like in a set that had Morph, like Scourge, um, yeah. the fact that f- players frequently had two twos lining up against one another would right. amplify the effect <laughs> of that. That's very interesting. Yeah, good recommendation. Well, at any rate, we don't need to talk too much about Healing Sab. Is it relevant in... It's not relevant in Alpha League or any no. other old school context, right? No, it isn't. Right? But it is very interesting to me that, I mean, the gaining three life is so much less relevant than the preventing damage. You know, and the oh, fact yeah. that they added that, that's just a, a massive upgrade at the last minute. <laughs> it and really I, is. <laughs> it's funny, too. Yeah, such a massive upgrade still couldn't save the card to make it any good. Yeah. But that they, I mean, and the division concept was already in alpha because they had it in, um, uh, on Fireball, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. And we already talked about how been. this is on the short list of modal spells in alpha, which is quite novel. Right. I, a couple more things. One, and these are outside of the mechanics of the card. One is the art, which is, again, yet another Dan Frazier classic where <laughs> there's a, a subject and then a completely um, a contextless background. Well, even it's, even it's especially same... noteworthy here because there's apparently a feminine hands that are reaching through the contextless background, which is really <laughs> inexplicable to me. <laughs> it's the same medium, though, whatever that, that medium is. <laughs> exactly. It's in the... That swirl art medium. It's, and again, I've seen that. I mean, I remember yeah. being in an art class, you know, probably in middle school or high school, where you created a vat, a kind of a, you know, a vat of that swirly painting and you just put, you put, or that material, that art paint, and then you just put the paper on top of it and it creates a nice pattern like that. And that's just a, a hallmark of Dan Frazier and Alpha, right? Absolutely. This one I think is especially egregious though, just because... The, char- the, the subject is reaching through that background, which yeah. is inexplicable to me. I don't, I don't get it, but hey, whatever. Well, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a David Lynch curtains in Twin Peaks. Oh, nice. Because the hands are just... Yeah. I like and, how and her, fel- her nail polish is coordinated with the background. And also, <laughs> is, it, is it interesting to you, Steve, that the salve itself is black? What a strange choice. I, you could be excused for thinking that a black salve in the context of high fantasy is not a good thing but that's just that's just an interesting choice like uh if you were to smear something that color on me in a high fantasy setting like in lord of the rings i would i wouldn't necessarily trust it 
but who knows maybe it's just made of blackberries you know <laughs> maybe it's just a nice, yeah. nice deep purple instead <laughs> it's yeah it's hard to put too much into that it could be it could be i mean it's <laughs> it could have just been to make it more visible in the art too like if it had just been yeah. a white substance in there it would have been a little hard to to visualize i think yeah that's interesting i also want to note that this card is historic this card is probably the most mispronounced card in alpha because for those of you who aren't noticing it the word sav has a silent l it's it's pronounced without the l and yet there are just a zillion people in this world who will call this card healing solve and <laughs> and do so every time um, uh, i think uh, i have something in between <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know the, the 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 genealogy of the word sav so i can't speak to it any more than that and i also recognize that it's definitely a col- uh, colonial approach to language to just mandate that that is the correct pronunciation but <laughs> it's the way i learned it and it turns out it's the way it's written in the books for at least the books i read so at any rate i find that interesting you are correct i think in this, the best kind of correct <laughs> yeah i think this is probably the most mispronounced card in the history of magic Partially due, simply due to its age, of course. Very likely. <laughs> Although there is a there are a number of interesting, you know, variant pronunciations on stapled magic cards over the years. There's oh, a lot absolutely. of competition for that. Oh, absolutely. It's it is a little of competition, yeah. All right. It's interesting. Healing Sav, such so poor at its place in the spectrum and yet so interesting to talk about. This next card, <laughs> there is no lack for interesting things to say about this next card. Okay, we're talking about Helm of Chatzuk. It's an artifact. It's a single colorless mana, or sorry, generic mana, mono artifact. It says one colon. You may give one creature the ability to band until end of turn. Now, there's a couple things we've already covered about what it means to be a mono artifact, right? It taps to activate, so it's only once per turn. It's a single mana, which means it's very efficiently costed. It gives banding until end of turn, which is in my opinion, still pretty powerful and actually a, one of the more powerful implementations of banding. I have never cast this card or activated it, even <laughs> though I owned a, a several of them in a revised context in my life. Banding, while it has some powerful implementations, mostly in limited, was just never that attractive to me. What's your association with the helm? Well, I am in a similar spot as you, Kevin. I don't believe that I have ever actually cast this card or activated it. But I have to say this podcast and my engagement in this COVID year with Alpha has given me a greater appreciation for the card. <laughs> I think part of the reason that that folks may not be aware of this card is because banding has been, I think it's fair to say, kind of jettisoned out of magic. <laughs> it's been discontinued as Definitely. a concept, uh, which means that, you know, it, it's not something that's been played in any constructed format in, in decades. Uh, and Limited really didn't exist as such until really about Ice Age, around the time this was banding was on its way out. And banding is obviously incredibly complicated. But banding is, as we have discussed, with starting with Banal Ashiro. So let's let's review the other banding creatures for a moment. Mm-hmm. Kevin, why don't you do that? Then well, I'll- <laughs> yeah, so there's not a lot of banding in Alpha. Don't get us wrong, right? Uh, obviously, it started with Alpha, as everything did, and it l- lingered until and through... Um, I, yeah, legends and beyond we've talked about banalish hero the most basic right. one a single white mana for a one one there's mesa pegasus which is the flying banalish hero for two mana yep also in white then there's timber wolves which is the green banalish hero right <laughs> at rare right. for some reason right. just as you know to establish the color pie and then the helm that's it that's so you've, it you've got yeah you've got 
two white creatures, a green creature, and this helm. That's the extent of banding well, in Alpha. And what our conversation established is that the thing about banding is it's not something you can use on a kind of one-off basis. The real power of banding is derived from having all but one of your creatures in having banding. Mm-hmm. So to play a banding deck or any strategy built around banding really requires you know, you to have a high density of... It's it's a little bit like playing Paradoxical Outcome. You need a high density of artifacts, right? <laughs> yeah, or, or to get Mox Opal on, you need a certain density of artifacts. The same thing is absolutely the case here. For, to, for banding to be incredibly... To get the most value out of banding, you need a, a sufficient density of creatures with banding. I think Helm of Chatso can help in that regard, but it's not going to fill a huge gap, right? If you're playing... I don't know, let's just, for sake of simplicity, a 60-card deck with, you know, 25 lands or so, and let's say 20 creatures, you can't have five creatures with banding and reliably use banding. You need to have probably like 12 creatures with banding at a minimum, right? Yeah. And and so, I I don't know, I think Helm of Chatsook is probably for a banding deck where there's a couple of creatures that are very powerful that you want to play that don't have banding and you can use this to get them in the band. <laughs> What's I, your assessment? I think that's an accurate assessment. I want to clarify. You're talking mostly from a constructed context, right? You've been yes. to 60 cards, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I would agree with what you said from a constructed context. If you're trying to make a banding deck, but in the, especially in the alpha context, the largest creature with banding is a one, one. <laughs> and so <laughs> yep. it's, it's attractive to try and add some larger creatures to a band also and make things life, you know, make life difficult for your opponent. The other thing to keep in mind is from a limited context, this card goes up in value a lot because limited frequently involves s- smaller, to, combat. smaller to moderate yeah. creatures. Yeah, fighting in combat and multiple blocks. That's the thing is if you take the word banding and remove it from the, the effect of the card, you could redesign this card and it would only be partially functional. But part of this card would be tap it and... If you're blocking this one creature with more than one creature, you get to assign combat damage. Like, yeah, that's the net effect of banding in a, in a multi-block situation, but you could have removed it from this card and abstracted that out. In that context, it's actually pretty powerful in limited, right? You're attacking me with a hill giant, and I have two... Like, I have a, I have a two grizzly bears. Okay, bad example. I have three grizzly bears. <laughs> that's what I should have said. You're attacking me with a hill giant. I have three grizzly bears. I could just triple block and activate the helm, and because one of my creatures in the band has uh, banding now... I get to assign combat damage to my creatures. So I just put one on each of my grizzly bears and none of them die. Right. Like you get that kind of effect when you're multi-blocking. And so in limited, I think having an activated ability that can be tossed around in your creatures is actually far more effective. But I agree with everything you said in the constructed context. No, I, I totally get your point. But to get card advantage out of that, which you really can't, what you're really trying to do is trade a very inefficient, efficient small creature for a larger creature. And you need to do it a couple of times to really get full value. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. You're right. right. You're absolutely yeah. right. It also matters as soon as you add in anything that has an, a fun ability like regeneration, right? If I have one drudge skeleton and any other amount of fun blockers on the ground, it's real hard for my opponent to attack into a drudge skeleton plus helm of Chatsuk because they're never going to kill any of my creatures on defense, right? Right. Because you're always going to helm your drudge skeleton and assign all combat damage to it from anything it blocked. And so it can get pretty gruesome, actually, especially if you've got a flying regenerator, which is possible in alpha, right? And 
so from that standpoint, I can understand why they this card justified being in alpha at rare, which it is. It's rare, right? And but honestly, I would I would argue that not all of the rarities in alpha are well considered in terms of limited play, of course. But using today's lens on it, I think it justifies being at least an uncommon from a limited standpoint. At so, that same time, uh, again, it was a really disappointing rare to open. <laughs> right. I want to make a comment about this this differentiation between constructed and, and limited. Now, obviously, the analysis that you had is is incredibly valid, but from a design perspective, there was no concept of constructed or limited. In it fact, was all kind of in between. It was all kind of in between in the yeah. sense that Richard Garfield and the other testers, play testers, conceptualized magic as a game in which players would have a limited card pool. Oh, yeah. But there weren't really kind of defined deck construction rules in, a, in the way that we understand it now. And in, in, in particular with kind of anything that you can get, <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, online or on eBay, and also um, with four-card maximums. Yeah. So... Yeah. So I, I, it's hard to know what the design intent here was. I think... It was probably somewhere between what you and I said, right? Yeah. Richard Garfield wasn't thinking about 60-card decks because that wasn't a thing, right? He was thinking about 40-card 40 40 decks. Even a 40-card deck. I know. Have- but he was thinking about the limitations of banding within the set, as you said. He was thinking about the fact that you just can't... You simply cannot have very many banding creatures. Also, this gives bandings to colors other than green and white, which we shouldn't. we should have said before, right? Right. And it's especially relevant in the well, context of like a dredge skeleton, like I said. Dred- so, ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. So it's it's not fully my point, and it's not fully the 60-card example you gave. It's somewhere in between, and the reality is I think it's okay. It's an okay card in so, that context. So We're playing with limited card, supply of cards. Even in a 40-card deck, right, you still need – basically what you said is right, that Helmut Chatsuk is just a way to get over against their best creature in combat and trade – your worst creature for their best a mm-hmm. couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably doesn't even go into a banding deck because if you have a, a like a banalish hero deck, probably something like sixty to eighty percent of your creatures at a minimum are going to have banding, <laughs> and so you'll you'll have the sufficient majority that you can bring a non-banding creature into the band yeah. without having to boost it through this. So I think this really is a kind of a I don't know banding is so interesting and weird and <laughs> it's. It, <laughs> It, it's hard to analyze because there are so few creatures with banding. And the four-card maximum, frankly, killed banding as a concept from the original design of Alpha. That's right? true. Because you c- just couldn't build, even in Standard in 1994, a Banalish Hero deck, which would have been fascinating to see, right? Just like it kind of killed the Plague, the plague Rats concept. <laughs> You're talking about the well. 1822 distribution, right? Right, impossible. But yeah. it would have been, without four-card maximums, it would have been easily conceivable that once type two was created why couldn't someone make a, a competitive banalish hero deck right but yeah. there are all sorts of problems you don't want people playing 20 lightning bolts here so anyway um <laughs> well and to your point the, banding never took off there's right. there, there are only 49 cards in the history of magic that even include or reference banding some of them are silver bordered so you can knock that down a few there's a whole cycle of lands in legends that are garbage so when it comes right down to it and we've talked about this before banding is on scant few creatures they're almost all white and they're almost all in the early days of magic but part of what i'm part of the point i'm trying to make is that i think the design intention and experience around banding was never manifest once constructed became a thing yeah and i think that's partly why it went away but also if the playtesters 
had designed alpha with an understanding of how how constructed would evolve, I think there would have been a l- many more creatures with banding designed, or they would have jettisoned the concept altogether. It would have been <laughs> one of the two. You wouldn't just have banding on three creatures, is what I'm saying. Agreed. I totally I agree. I think that's unlikely. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. All right. Well, enough on the. Ha- oh, sorry. One other thing, art-wise, Mark Tadine, um Art's this cool. Is a, it's actually a pretty a menacing st- helm. It's a stunning piece of artwork. It, it really uh, I, is. I really. It's amazing. It's interesting. The Gamma version of it, again, Alpha used kind of pop culture, comic book art. The original Gamma art used uh, the helmet from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comic. Mm. And the ultimate artwork is actually not far from that original image. (laughs) So I I, I have to think that Mark Tadine drew some inspiration from that in the first instance. But it's it's, it's really an impressive piece of art. Bizarre and unusual and weird, but... I have to admit also that... It, to my eyes, it's actually hard to... It takes a little bit of concentration to figure out which part is the helm and which part is the creature wearing the helm. Hmm. The, hmm. There's some some good indicators because a helm suggests that it only goes down to you know to the base of your neck and or, or maybe higher up. But in this case, it appears to do that. And there's a prominent portion of what I'm just going to call skin <laughs> for this creature that's, hmm. that's gelatinous and purple. And there's a similar gelatinous purple bit on the side of the face which suggests that there's a big open bit uh, along the like the jawline or the cheek line of, of this helm and that this creature's flesh is purple. Um, it's really fantastic. I don't know if Chetzuk is a thing that I've heard about at any other point yeah. in Magic's history. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, yeah. yeah, this is What's the only the card that references. Yeah. I'm searching now for uh, for flavor text. I don't see any other references to it. I might be searching incorrectly. Yeah, Chatsook is a just let kind of a, a thing. It makes me wonder if it's let an me, anagram, like there's so many were in Alpha. Let me look up one thing real quick. There's a hold on a second. I want to I want to see something. While you're looking that up, to... I just want to point out that we haven't really talked about it too much. But there's a, there's several anagrams in the early sets of Magic. Right. Um, one of the more famous ones is uh, Nevernroll's Disc, which is an anagram of Larry Niven, and so I don't know this, but it's possible that Chetzuk is an anagram of some person's name that was a friend of Richard Garfield or one of the other devs. I I don't know that. That's just speculation based on some historical precedent for weird uh, weird sounding and, or spelled names in Alpha and early sets. It's also worth noting, since we'd like to talk about reprints, this card was in ABU plus revised fourth and fifth and never again. So Yeah. <laughs> well, that it goes in and out with banding, right? I mean, yeah. it was thought to be well, a staple at the original. Yeah. Yeah. game and then taken out what was the last banding card oh i had that the shoot i had that up uh, for an earlier thing and i don't have it up anymore i think technically it was actually greater morphling which kind of doesn't count. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> which is a, you know type four all-star greater morphling yeah. okay but if you look for cards with banding and you sort by release date then oh whoops i gotta do i gotta i gotta eliminate reprints Okay, then the most recent printing of a card that references banding was, in fact, Greater Morphling, but before that it was Weatherlight. There were two white creatures in Weatherlight that had banding. And what were they, just to complete the trivia? Banalish Infantry, pretty good callback. It's a 1-3 with banding for 3 mana, direct callback to Banalish Hero, and Volunteer Reserves, a 2-mana 2-4 with banding and cumulative upkeep of 1 colorless. Strange. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. They still were not, in, even though they were printing creatures with banding pretty consistently in, in some of the in several of the early sets, they were just not investing in power level at all. What was the second one again? 
What was the title of that? Volunteer oh. Reserves. Two mana, two four, with banding and wow. cumulative upkeep of one colorless. You know, it's interesting that both of these creatures, this is probably something they realized earlier, is that the banding creatures were just too small in alpha and they just died too easily. So in both of these cases, they boosted the toughness to try yes. and make banding, I think, a little Good little observation. Completely agree. Whereas whereas in the original conception, it was basically like banding is the is the blaze of glory guy, right? Going down, <laughs> sacrificing itself for the sake of the band. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, that analysis you just made, Steve. There are... <laughs> this is fascinating. In terms of creatures with banding, there are 13 creatures that with banding but have toughness of one. Think about that. Right. 13 creatures, including the three in alpha, that have banding but they have toughness of one. As uh, in, in contrast, there are 20 creatures with banding or that reference banding that have toughness greater than one. And most of those are still small. Most of those are two toughness, right? So over a third are just one toughness. <laughs> yeah, to get in terms of toughness greater than two, there's only 11. That to me, it, my, here's a guess. Suppo- my supposition would be that most of the one toughness banding creatures were printed before, constru- designed, not printed, but designed before constructed rules had evolved yeah i think that's a fair assessment you're right they're they're frequently in the early days early sets you're right yeah banding did not really get a fair shake i actually think it's a better ability than history has demonstrated in the cards i agree i don't think that banding was taken out because mechanically it was too weak despite the despite the problems with uh you know the lack of creatures with banning. I think it was clearly taken out because of the endless rules confusion it generated. <laughs> oh, jeez, there's just no right? denying. That's right. So, <laughs> did you you mentioned the the gamma version of Helmet Chat Sook, but we kind of buried the lead on the actual functionality in gamma for the helm because in gamma it's still a one mana artifact that costs one to activate, but the wording is may stack two creatures. And there's an explanation for this. The, the simple explanation is that banding was known as stacking in Gamma. That stands to reason, right? Because you end up stacking up creatures to attack or block. It's a pretty, pretty intuitive word, I think, in context. I think that's interesting. In practice, it says two creatures. And so the fact that you can give a, a single creature banding with the, the alpha implementation is actually slightly more powerful because it means that if you had more than one helm in play, you could build a bigger band than just two. <laughs> but point. it is it is debatable what would happen if you had two gamma helms in play. If you combine <laughs> yeah. two creatures into a stack, and then can you bring a third creature into that stack? Or does it make two separate stacks? I don't know. I don't know how the rules were meant to work in gamma. But I do think they simplified it a little bit and made it a little bit better. Yeah. Only a little bit, though. All right, let's move on. Helm of Chatsuk. Good stuff. Next up, we have <laughs> Hill Giant, <laughs> which we just recently reviewed Gray Ogre and Grizzly Bear. So this, this early, early middle part of the alphabet is the just trifecta. filled with, yeah, with the hits. Hill Giant needs no introduction, right? 3R, Summon Giant, 3-3, text boxes filled with only flavor text. This is, like so many before it, the, the prototypical Hill Giant. Four mana for a 3-3. Extra abilities on top of that are gravy, and you obviously you can't print a card without extra abilities at four mana three three anymore. But this is the reason why we call those cards hill giants, and there's <laughs> kind of not much more to it than that, right? I have to confess, I am dying to hear your description of the print schedule of this card. 
Oh, jeez. You mean the, the, how many times it's been reprinted, etc.? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the short answer is the number is 18. And somewhat inexplicably, and I really do mean that, this card survived all the way through to 9th edition. 10th edition. Sorry, 10th edition. Sorry, I was looking at the wrong uh, things. So it was reprinted in ABU and then 4th and 5th. And then it took a little bit of a break. It wasn't in any of the big tentpole uh, core sets, you know, Ice Age, Mirage, Tempest. It wasn't in any of those. Fifth edition, it was in Portal. Then it skips sixth edition for some reason. And then it's in seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth edition, which I just can't, <laughs> I can't understand. Like, <laughs> it was already not good enough at those points. I don't get why it kept being reprinted. But hey, it was one of those cards that there was a strong commitment and even deep into Magic's development that this was a staple for the game. The, the the gatherer reviews on this are brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's also really interesting. interesting that it is in Portal. I mean, that what do you make of that? Just well, a testament uh, to its, stipi- its its yeah kind of staple role. I just some cards score despite the the variations in reprinting happenings. Some cards just score higher than others in terms of people's. And I mean, people in R and D's impression of how important they are to the game, and the fact that it's important is a testament to the fact that they thought it was really important. At the same time, some of the goals of Portal were simplicity too, so it ticks both yeah. of those boxes pretty strongly. The Portal image and just aesthetic of the Portal Hill Giant is actually pretty cool. It's 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 yeah. really a beautiful card. It is. It's a it's a throwback. It's got simple composition. Mm-hmm. I really love the Portal art. And the fact I that it's not that violent, that's the thing that stands out to me. Is yeah. it's, it's more like a, a pensive, reclusive kind of giant than a violent yeah. one. Yeah, the giant, it's almost a Greek philosopher sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, Kevin, note, also noteworthy, the, the, speaking of art, sorry, Steve, speaking of art, the fifth edition version shows a uh, female character, which is not unusual by today's standards in terms of magic creatures, but in terms of a generic high fantasy concept, having a giant, giant yeah. being expressed as a female as early in uh, as fifth, fifth, fifth edition is actually pretty noteworthy for the game. And it's and a I shame also, that we lost that. It is. It's a great point. And I also really like the art in that. Oh yeah. I it's, mean, good, it's great it, art. The, the foreground and the background are really ethereal and cool. Yeah. I mean, so, unfortunately the, the figure's composition is a little bit comic comic booky for you know mid nineties comic booky for me, but that's true. It's real early. It's well, it's also real early like D and D style depictions of women, which is scant clothing and inexplicable lewdness. <laughs> but right. so that's not. But the yeah, o- it has but, problems. But that- the overall composition is sweet. Her like you know she's holding the the giant axe you know yeah. under the in the in the low you know, fog and the, the weird tree in the background and the blood red background that melds into the, the frame of the card is all, all it has, very it's nice. some strong effect. Yeah. It's cool. And the fog. Yeah. The other thing though, you, you are, you have repeatedly remarked on Dan Frazier backgrounds. This is <laughs> one occasion in which he's abandoned that swirl medium art and actually has a kind of very low, just to emphasize how big this giant is, right? Yeah. He has a low tree in the background and then just sky. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's noteworthy in that sense, right? You could you wouldn't be too surprised to have seen this card with one of his swirly backgrounds. And so I'm glad you right. pointed that out. And it's also interesting that this is, 
if you were to cover up the artist on this, you could definitely be excused for thinking this was Jeff Mangus, right? Yep. Given it the does color palette. Very Jeff. <laughs> very Jeff Mangus. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I don't have too much else to add about Hill Giant. I mean, it's it's the prototype. It is, it's been formative for the culture of the game. At the same time, it's definitely past its prime by many, many decades. <laughs> I think that th- these these four mana 3-3s, three War Mammoth and Hill Giant and Alpha League, are actually not that bad in, in Alpha League Constructed. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. In the Alpha League Constructed, sure. Yeah, and at Common, it's pretty easy to come by, right? Right. You can build a... a decently competitive deck with a bunch of these kinds of cards yeah we commented before about how the power and toughness distribution is in alpha and and three three is no slouch in that context especially at common you there's the the list is short for things that can tussle with this at especially at common uh in that context all right let's talk about holy armor another one of the many many auras and we've talked about it a little bit already w for an enchant creature and it reads as two abilities, basically. Target creature gains plus zero, plus two. And then it says, white, colon, target creature gets extra, plus zero, plus one, until end of turn. <laughs> noteworthy because of the word extra, which I like. It's also noteworthy because unlike some other abilities and other cards, we've mentioned several already, this one actually explicitly states until end of turn, which is just... Uh, contributing factor to the notion that things that have fire breathing uh, don't end at the end of the turn which by today's standards we know is just a typographical or grammatical short hand but in the in the context of rules interpretation has some evidence to it otherwise this card's pretty unremarkable i mean i definitely cast a few of these in my youth because it did make a card a creature pretty hard to kill but it's pretty unremarkable yeah. I mean, you have made the point earlier. Well, look, we've talked a lot about enchant creatures. This card is uh, yet another one of the defensive enchant, you know, the opposite of a blessing, so on. Mm-hmm. Um, not blessing. Um, fire breathing. Fire breathing. Yeah. yeah. The art is noteworthy, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons. One, Melissa Benson. And she did just a really cool, very detailed, very detailed character mm-hmm. here. An very action pose. Rendered. Yeah, an action pose with a pretty wicked looking uh, everything. <laughs> a pretty wicked looking set of armor, humongous helm with humongous horns, and uh, an awesome looking uh, mace, you know, with three spiked balls swinging around. At the same time, completely devoid of context. Yeah, she she managed yeah. to, to make a nice <laughs> gradient here in the background, but it's really kind of bizarre that the figure is so so sharply, sharply and detailed rendered. And rendered yeah and it's so suggestive of action and yet the action is just completely eliminated from <laughs> the context so I, I think it's a humorous uh contradiction in that regard it's still beautiful though i have a comment to make about both cards but i want to do it in the context of the next card yeah all right the next card is unsurprisingly holy strength holy strength is an aura also for w enchant creature target creature gets plus one plus two a much simpler implementation of an aura than holy armor Steve, what's the comparison that you'd like to draw? Well, the 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 difference is, which is interesting, is that in the case of Holy Armor, it's about a kind of an artifact, right? It's the the armor that the figure is wearing. Whereas in Holy Strength, mm-hmm. there's a depiction of inherent power, ah, which is interesting. Yeah, and in the depiction, the art is, I think, appropriate to the depiction. Um, but in both cases, you get a boost, right? And it's interesting all the different 
thematic ways in which they've de- they've decided to give boost to creatures, whether it's like a blessing, right, which is a even more abstract than a strength or an armor, right? It's, I mean, blessing in a sense is almost even more removed in, in terms of the core D and D concept conceptualization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like I like that they had both types. I think it's interesting. The comparison you're making too is noteworthy from the standpoint of gamma. Because holy strength exists in Gamma, holy armor does not. Holy armor is one of those cards that was added to the playtest file or the the card file after Gamma to, well, I don't really know the reason, right? To just fill in more diversity of effects. And the original holy strength was just plus one, plus one. So holy strength gets a boost after Gamma. Holy armor gets created for, I'm going to assume, the purposes of diversification right by comparison unholy strength was also plus one plus one (laughs) so in again in gamma so it's pretty clear that early gamma had white and black on far more even footing there's obviously still some some commonality there white knight black knight uh crusade versus blood moon so but they took an opportunity when they produced alpha to differentiate white and black in this regard, making black more offensive, white more defensive. And then they doubled down on that by making unholy, uh, by making holy armor and making it especially defensively focused. Yeah. But, you know, despite the scalability of holy armor, I think we have to say holy strength is the better card. Well, <laughs> really history do. has, yeah, well, I agree. History has taught us that that little bit of power makes a big difference because it, because additional power is not only more valuable from terms of uh, racing, you know, ending the game, dealing more damage to your opponent. It's also subtly more powerful on defense, right? Yep. Turning a white knight into a 3-4 is hugely yep. more impactful than turning a white knight into a 2-4, or maybe yep. a 2-5 or a 2-6. Yep, because the first strike. Mm-hmm. And, and also the other thing to note is that... Um, Holy strength and unholy strength are the first of the kind of briar shield effects that we get in alpha. What right? do you mean by the that? Kind of, well, the kind of let's stack, you know, unstable mutation, that kind of thing, you know, to get a lot of power quickly on super mm. efficient creatures. Yeah. And unholy strength actually helps with that because you get a lot. I mean, you were the one who pointed out, right, that there is no, kind of amazingly, there's <laughs> th- there's no. Besides from script sprites, there's no just generic one-one flying creature in alpha, right? Yeah, yeah. Blue doesn't have one, and white has the Mesa Pegasus, which you have to pay two for. Yeah, the strategy of stacking enchantments uh, auras to make your creatures significantly more impactful is is a real thing, especially in black and white when you have access to the knights. I mean, the knights are so undercosted by comparison that they and and the first strike they they benefit just so much more from these boosts these permanent boosts right that it's said not long it's not long until you get the strategies built around that kind of thing right i mean that's what i was trying to get at that's exactly I what mean, i wanted to ask you about is what's what's your experience with that kind of thing well <sighs> uns- anyone who's played in in old school knows that unstable mutation is immensely powerful mm. right oh, yeah. um and you get you it's it's not very long i mean even people who played like type 1 back in the day you know in the late 90s remember stompy decks and maybe you remember kevin you know the stompy decks that had like um um vine dryad rogue elephant and then they played 
you know, a bunch of boosters like Rancor and Briar Shield and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, yeah. And that it took very little. In fact, there was almost a mathematical elegance and precision <laughs> to that kind of deck design where it's like, how can you build the most consistent, compact, efficient route with the fastest route to victory? And there were a lot of people who built those kinds of things, which is like mono green wild dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember all of them at the time, but there was a whole <laughs> suite right. of them. Right, <laughs> where it's and, like okay, if I they're the precursors to grow, right to Delver, they're the precursors to that low land count, virtual card advantage, growing creatures yeah. archetype. Right, and and I've mentioned this several times in the podcast before, but the Granville Explosion deck was built around those concepts. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> it really was. Well, Steve, Holy Strength has a, an interesting reprint pr- trajectory. We've seen a lot of different paths in terms of... I'm loving this part of this, of this <laughs> podcast, by the way. So, the, Holy Strength has this really bizarre straight line through only core sets history, which is, it's actually pretty unique. It's in ABU, 4th, 5th, inexplicably missing from 6th edition. It's in Revised. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. ABU, Revised, 4th, 5th inexplicably missing from 6th edition, then it's in 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and then M10 and M11. So (laughs) except for 6th edition, a straight line path through core sets, not in any expansion or any core set-like sets, Ice Age Mirage, Tempest, all the way through M11, and then never again. Oh, so that is I, this must be a unique yet unique another unique path. path yeah so it's so viewed as core to the game all the way through m11 that's that's fully five sets worth of modern one two three four yeah <laughs> this card is in modern five <laughs> times over and it's laughable by today's standards no one had ever played this card in upset like modern <laughs> it's it's so bizarre to me that this card more so than hill giant more so than so many other cards we've mentioned yeah, was viewed yeah was viewed as such survived a staple the of culling. the color yeah amazing that is fascinating um one of the cards we just recently mentioned, you, you noted, was absent from sixth. Sixth, to my mind, stands out as obviously one of the most important core sets of all time, if not the most important after Alpha, because sixth edition was the major re-envisioning yeah. of the game. And after that, it's M10, in my mind. Yeah, um, and you're thinking mostly two... from a rules standpoint, right? Well, um, I, more Not than just that, rules, I... but strongly from a rules standpoint. I think actually the rules were emanations of a deeper philosophical change, which is that in both cases they decided to kind of, in both cases, 6th edition and M10 are redesign of magic from the ground up, rebuilding magic from the ground up. And the rules were a byproduct of that redesign. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, those were, those were high points in my opinion, in the development of the game and the, the, how they envisioned it, as you said. Holy strength. Uh, I I don't know if I specifically asked already, but is it a thing in Alpha Forty? Well, I think it. I think if you can build a kind of, there are probably white X decks. You know, first of all, banding is certainly a thing, and I mm-hmm. think in the banding deck, you could throw some of these in with the Banalish heroes. So here here's the thing I've discovered, and <laughs> Pat Chapin had an interesting tweet the other day, where he was <laughs> tweeting about. Um, you know what is the kind of what are the kind of rules of thumb for playing one ofs, twos of, three of, four ofs? So, so one of the things that's interesting, Kevin, is that once you explode that cap, 
then you have these interesting possibilities that I felt like snarkily tweeting Patrick and saying, can you give me some guidance for if there's no four of cap, <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> when do I play five ofs and six ofs? Um, but uh, what I, what we discovered in the months that we've been playing the league is there is a, basically a formula and the formula is basically for what I call trigger gimmick decks. And that's an oversimplification is that, you 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 can call them A and B decks, right? So like Joel Mix Elves deck has like the A slot is Llanowar Elves, twelve Llanowar Elves. The B slot is Giant Growth, eight Giant Growths, and then he has a number of singletons around it, a couple handful of singletons like a Winter Orb and so on. Oh, yeah. he had like three three Hurricanes, three Berserks, so a couple of other things. But basically, I think if you were to design, let's say, a Banalish Hero deck, right? You could very easily conceive. Okay, I'm going to have twelve Banalish Heroes let's say, five Mesa Pegasus, and then you've got maybe eight other cards. Right. Maybe you run, you know, I don't know, maybe three or four Holy Strengths, maybe the th- maximum three Blessings, maximum three Crusades. Right. I could. My point is that I could see Holy Strengths getting in there. They're better than Holy Armors in the deck, clearly. Um, the situationally so, powerful when all your creatures have banding because it means when you mix it up in combat against a creature that has two power or less... You don't even lose a Banalish hero. No, no. Yeah. It so, makes the band very powerful. Yeah. The other thing is the other thing is that I could you you could see this being put into a deck that had so so. By the way, the same the same thing is true of of unholy arm unholy uh, armor. So if you're playing the let's say the A B deck Plagrat deck, right? You probably have some number of dark rituals, some number of maybe a small number of pestilences or terrors or paralyzes. Yeah. You probably run. So you probably may consider not not automatically include, but you consider some number of unholy strength, right? And so the point I'm trying to make is that I think in a white-green deck, I think unholy armor might be pretty good because you can put them on... Which card? You mean holy strength? Sorry, unholy strength, right? (laughs) Because you could put them on some scrib sprites, right? Like like one of these on a scrib sprite with the threat of giant growth berserk around the corner makes it very dicey. Yeah. I think I think this could be good in a white green deck, yeah. or a or a, or just a white banding deck. Well, especially when flying is involved, because flying immediately right. puts you into another echelon of creature in the alpha context. And a two three, while it doesn't tussle very well with a uh, like a Sarah Angel Singer Vampire type, you're only one giant growth away from winning that fight. And or or so on a relevant. war mammoth would hatch trample. Oh, sure, sure. Absolutely. A 4-5 Trampler is pretty nice in the Alpha context. Yeah. One other thing to point to about Holy Strength is simply the art. I've always found this art to be very beautiful. Simplistic in its palette, yet very complex in all the different shades of white and blue that are involved. It conveys a lot with only two colors. I've always found this art to be very compelling. You know, (laughs) as we've been going through this, I think it's solidified or cemented my... And also deepen my appreciation of the differences between the original magic artists. And the ones that really yeah. stand out and that have stand out, you know, Melissa, Melissa Benson, Mark Tadeen, Anson Maddox, Dan Frazier, uh, uh, Jeff Mengus, uh, your favorite, uh, Drew Tucker. But Anson Maddox just doesn't have many misses. <laughs> you know, he just, he just, it, you know, yeah. it's, they're all hits. <laughs> you know, it's... yeah. And they have this kind of, they have a, a, part of what I'm trying to say is there's a, there's an identity 
to their artistic styles that come through despite Je- Jesper Meifer's attempt to, you know, attempt to create a holistic or a through line. I think it's, that's what's so amazing about this. That's the observation I'm really driving towards, is that Alpha has a holistic artistic impression that every card is part, feels like part of a set, part of a greater whole, and yet they also have such strong individual artistic identities. I think it's amazing, an amazing accomplishment. I like it. I'm right there with you. This one's also uh, strongly devoid of context, but in my opinion, that doesn't detract from this at all because it's so evocative and so interesting to look at in contrast uh, with the background. All right, next up is (laughs) Howl from Beyond. This card is noteworthy in its uniqueness, I would say, in the alpha context. (laughs) So XB, for an instant, target creature gains plus X, plus zero until end of turn. Now... I have to say, and I have to laud this wording because it is precisely the same as the Oracle wording today. 20-some years later, they actually nailed the Oracle wording on Alpha in the year 2020. It's pretty impressive, and <laughs> that it should be celebrated. Also, this card is way cool, and I have a strong association with this card being pretty menacing in my early days of Magic. Uh, but I want to talk about that in a little bit. Steve, what are your thoughts on Howl from Beyond? Well, the the card is a very potent image, as you said. A very potent imagery. Mm-hmm. I think it maybe is almost too forceful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very forceful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the thing that comes up to my mind is this is... So we, we've talked about Fireball and, and Disintegrate. It's another expel. In Alpha is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And there are so many different iterations of X spells. And X is really, I think, an important spell type. So we've got the Burn. We've got Brain Geyser and Draw. We've got Discard and Mind Twist. And we have Damage Prevention and Guardian Beast. At some point... And, and, and we have Guardian Angel. <laughs> Guardian Angel, sorry. <laughs> we were waiting for this this effect, right? Just It's not Burn, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like a Black Berserk. And um, I think the only thing puzzling about it to me, given the fact that fire breathing exists, is that this isn't black and not red. Totally fair. Completely agree. It's definitely black eating some of red's color pie lunch. Or green would be the next thing, because you have all the the creature boosters like Giant Growth and Berserk in green. Mm -hmm. Maybe they thought it was just redundant in green. But green doesn't... Green has one X spell, right? Hurricane, that's it. The... They have Stream of Life. Oh, Stream of Life. So you get yeah. the Life one, too. Yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. And it's just another example of there being a lot of color pie overlap in Alpha, uh, for the reasons you already stated. I think this dovetails pretty strongly with with Holy Strength and Unholy Strength in terms of positioning black as and one of the, the two dominant offensive colors. In that context, it makes the card Blessing a little bit inexplicable, right? why white gets the most efficient creature pumper <laughs> right. that right. i mean white blessing is just howl from beyond except it costs xww right <laughs> assuming you're mono white you can't put colors mana to it so it's not completely the same but you could be excused from thinking that blessing is just a sorcery speed howl from beyond because that's how it plays out in practice a lot of the time yeah but that notwithstanding howl from beyond has its own uh interactions right the surprise element of an instant is obviously has certain value over a an aura like blessing the memory that i have for howl from beyond is very very early in my magic days 
the weekend that I learned how to play Magic, shout out to my cousin Andy for teaching me this game. He had his couple of decks, you know, these all the cards I own kind of decks, which is a mixture of revised and legends for the most part, although there were a couple of other sets mixed in there to smaller quantities. And we were just playing. He was teaching me the rules, tech and block, blah, blah, blah. And then he swings in with this moderate creature in some mid-game. And I say, ah, I don't have a good block here, so I guess I'm going to take it. And then he plays Howl from Beyond. And I remember thinking, it wasn't lethal, but it was just a huge hit. Like, I took 10 damage or whatever. I remember thinking, that's incredibly unfair. You can do that after I said I wasn't going to block? <laughs> I want to go back and block now. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny that because... When you think about it, in the alpha context, while we encode alpha as having all these combat tricks and stuff, when you're just learning the game, it's not a given that that not blocking is going to result in something terrible happening that you couldn't have foreseen, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you've just encountered the game and your opponent shows you this one thing for the first time that says, now my creature is enormous, it was really... Right. It had a strong impact just, on me. <laughs> it's just not the case with Berserk, where Berserk it doesn't often doesn't matter whether you block or not. That's, that's case, a good point too. It, yeah, it maximally punishes you, right? And giant growth is is so capped that it's so f- it's it's only used to kill you usually in multiples or in combinations with other things, right? It's frequently used to just win a combat when creatures are blocking. Howl from Beyond though frequently is just a gotcha, right? You didn't block, yeah, now you're, you're maximally is, punished really for is. it. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's not the only application. Anything else you want to say about Howl from Beyond? Uh, just that the art is is really forceful, as you said. It's very evocative to me. It's one of those arts that stands out for me in the early days of Magic, like Herloon Minotaur. It was never used for the marketing, but it's one that I really associate with early Magic. And also, from a reprint standpoint, ABU, and then Revised, and then 4th Edition, and then Ice Age, which is interesting, and then 5th, and 6th, and 7th. So kind of a middle ground reprint for Howl from Beyond. It lingered up until 7th edition, got into one of the pseudo core sets in Ice Age, then never again. Just not good enough by today's standards. Mark Poole art, pretty awesome. <laughs> and once again, congratulations on having that Oracle wording in Alpha. That's, that's a rarity. Next up is a personal favorite of mine, and, and I know that we can talk a lot about this. Howling oh, yeah. Mine. Howling Mine is an artifact, two mana. It's a continuous artifact. At the beginning, sorry, I was reading the, the Oracle text by mistake. Each player draws one <laughs> extra card each turn during his or her draw phase. Not, not a very egregious wording, right? Not quite the way we would do it today. And it doesn't include the tapping reference, which the, we can talk about at length, I think. But it's not a terrible wording, right? The fact that it, it, it specifies well. their, the, each player's draw phase helps with the clarity as opposed to something like Copper Tablet. Interesting, obviously, in comparison to Copper Tablet. Yeah, that's the problem, that each turn is a little bit of ambiguity there. Yeah, this card does a good job of clarifying uh, the, the draw phase part. And just yeah. so just so we're clear, the continuous artifact part means that yes. in the alpha context, if this card were tapped, its effect would not happen. And that is a powerful use case for Howling Mind Hu- throughout the years. Hugely significant. Mm-hmm. I, I can't overstate... Look. Topped I mean, only the, by Winter Orb, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so the way the place I want to start with this card is that in Alpha, there are very few ways to get direct card advantage, period. 
right? right? I mean, there's Ancestral Recall, Mind Twist, Brain Geyser. You can get some card advantage with Fireball, uh, Pestilence. You know, there, there's, there's a few ways. It's very hard. There are even fewer ways to draw additional cards. Just drawing additional cards, which is something we just take for granted today, mm-hmm. is virtually impossible in Alpha. <laughs> I mean, it really have, is. We talked about this already. The list is short. Yeah, there's Ancestral Recall, Brain Geyser, JM Day Tome, and Howling Mine. Plus and the, the wheels. About, and, we, and the wheel and Time Twister. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Howling Mine is that Howling Mine, by design, has the potential to be quite asymmetrical. And, and it will, so here's the thing. In, this extends all the way to Old School 94. But in Old School 94, the two basic draw engines that exist outside of JM Day Tome James Tome is obviously the draw engine in old school 94, mm-hmm. 93, 94. Aside from because, the restricted blue cards, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's the draw engine. The deck in old school 93, 94 placed three or four tomes, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. <laughs> and and for how, how far that deviates from the historical. We'll talk experience. about that more when we get to the tome. Right. But there's really only two other, way, two other cards that can generate directly draw additional cards. There's Sylvan Library and Howling Mine. Mm-hmm. You know, even, I mean, Kevin, even as late as, like, Invasion, there weren't a lot of factor fiction type cards. Remember how powerful factor fiction was? Oh, just yeah. Just drawing additional cards was enormously powerful. Now we just take that sort of thing for granted. There's all sorts of ways to get additional cards. Chase the Mind Sculptor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So Howling Mine and Sylvan Library in old school are basically the, next to Jam Day Tome, but for non-the-deck decks, it's Howling Mine and Sylvan Library are the two draw engines in the format. And it really does become a draw engine when you have Relic Barrier, and Relic Barrier is so good in old school 93, 94. Mm-hmm. And obviously Sylvan, there's all sorts of ways to, to, to work that angle. And Sylvan, obviously, even appearing in vintage decks you know, under the ingenious insight of Brian Kelly in, in the last half decade. Um, but Howling Mine's asymmetrical use case really depends on being able to turn it off, right? On being able to icy it in the first case, being able to relic barrier it, other things like that. And the fact that that no longer works like that, I think is a tremendous disadvantage to the way the card was intended to work. Um, Well, that's... And also, sorry... the, The Oracle wording has the tapping clause in it. Thank God. Yeah. Not every card that was a continuous but, artifact survived that way, sadly, right. <laughs> which has errata-type issues that we've already alluded to a little bit. But uh, this one actually maintained that functionality. So that's what I wanted to say, is that it really is a key draw engine-type card. And it sees, it saw, it's, look, it sees play in a lot of different interesting <laughs> old-school decks. I mean, it's, it's good in the Winds of Change deck. There are all sorts of decks, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Stasis-type decks, where you can you can play it um, certainly black with black vise as a win condition it's quite powerful, but that's that's all I wanted to say. So go ahead, tell us about its reprint history. Well, okay, so it's another one of those cards that is primarily a core set card only, with scant few exceptions. So Alpha Beta Unlimited revised fourth, fifth, six, seven, eight, nine, <laughs> ten, M ten. And that's the last printing that actually brought it into any format legality. It has been reprinted a couple times in Commander sets since then. So similar to some other cards, a a, a core set stalwart and never in any other context, Commander products notwithstanding. 
which is interesting. A very uniform core set staple all the way up through M10. I want to compare that, the reprint pattern, to what you just said about the rules, especially with respect to the tapping bit, because, Steve, we've alluded to this before, but remind our audience, when did the continuous artifact bit get removed from Magic as a rule? Like, when did artifacts stop caring about what type of artifact they were and... Uh, you know, the card have to have the printed language on it in order for it to really work that way. Well, there's there's two answers to that. The first is that continuous artifacts as a type were taken out um, with Very revised. Early. Yeah. With revised in third edition. Yeah. Um, and the rule for but, continuous artifacts not functioning when they're tapped, did that go with it uh, between unlimited and revised then? Kevin, the answer is sixth edition. Fascinating. So, yeah, so, dis- so continuous artifacts were discontinued with Unlimited, which is after Unlimited, you know, after second edition. But it's not until sixth edition that the idea that an artifact with a continuous effect turned off or no longer generates that effect when it was tapped was eliminated. And it was eliminated with the belief that it simplified the rules. Yeah. Well, that dovetails very nicely with the print history of Howling Mine. Because the 6th edition printing of Howling Mine is the first time that the printed card had the tapped or untapped language. So the 6th edition version says at the beginning of each uh, player's draw step, if Howling Mine is untapped, that player draws an extra card. So it, that the card didn't say that until 6th edition, which means that every apparently there is consistently throughout Howling Mine's history the combination of the rules or the printed card which supports that. Unfortunately, not every artifact was so fortunate. And we'll talk about yeah. that probably at more length when we get well, to Winter Orb. We've already talked about Dingus Egg <laughs> and a couple other continuous artifacts, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Howling Mine, obviously formative to Magic's early days for, for multiple reasons, tactically and strategically, right? I have to tell you that it was a it was a real favorite of mine. I was definitely uh, a casual player when I, you know, for the first several years interacting with the game, and for whatever reason, early on, drawing cards was something I was very much attracted to. <laughs> and so I just, card, I just put Howling Mine into a bunch of decks for no good reason. Well, this card has the win-win-win. It has great art, great <laughs> yeah. title and concept, and great effect. Now, obviously, in a control deck, it's not the card you want to play. But, if you're, <laughs> but there's so many strategies where it's fantastic. You know, if you're playing a Chains of Mephistopheles deck like you used to play, if you're playing mm-hmm. uh, a Winds of Chain, an Underworld Dreams deck, it's fantastic. If you're playing a Black Vise deck, it can be really good. Uh, I played so it in Stasis decks to, stasis, to draw my opponent out. Yeah, Stasis, Stasis Vise. So it's just, it's, there's, this is just, I think, one of the most iconic cards in Alpha. It's just, it's wonderful. I mean, and also the art, it, it's just detailed in all the right ways and suggestive. You know, it's like it, <laughs> there's this looming creature in, in the in you know in the mine or or beast, and then there's you know the mine itself has hieroglyphics on it, and then it suggests you're in some sort of you could be in some cavern, you could be inside a mountain, you could be you could be <laughs> almost anywhere. It's just it's just great fantasy art. And much like cards we've already discussed, uh, Ankh of Mishra and Dingus Egg, this started in Gamma as a four mana artifact. <laughs> four mana was just a sweet spot for symmetrical effects for artifacts in Gamma, and it was powered up into Alpha. Otherwise, it was the same card. Each player draws an extra card at the start of their turn. It was the same card for all other purposes. 
yeah, love some Howling Mine. And we'll talk about the art a little bit more when we get to Word of Command. So, (laughs) (laughs) speaking of iconic cards, next up we have Herloon Minotaur. The card itself has some tactical points that we can point out. It's a vanilla creature, (laughs) 1RR, summon Minotaur. Nothing in the text box other than flavor, and it's a 2-3. But, in my opinion, the most noteworthy part about Herloon Minotaur is that it was a visual icon for magic. It was used in their marketing materials. It's a very, very detailed and beautiful piece of art. God, Uh, it's a Despite the fact that it has no context, like so many other cards. But at the same time, the amount of detail in the rendering of this creature is just almost staggering. And... Anson Maddox, once again. Uh, I was never really attracted to this card, but I always just paused when I saw it and looked at it and thought, wow, that is so cool. I wish it was a better card. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two two observations about the art I wanted to make. Three, actually. So the the fur is just incredibly rounded. Oh, yes. But the, the second is... Light the, and dark and details and shadows. Yeah. yeah, but it's also so textured. You feel like it's, you know, yeah. it's totally realistic photorealistic but the second thing is the the tattoo on the face is mm-hmm. it, the reason that's so amazing is not just the t- detail of it but it suggests an incredibly rich culture that these yeah. minotaurs have and, and, and an intelligence behind them behind yeah. what is ostensibly you know a a greek myth beast right <laughs> a, mm-hmm. mytho- a, a creature from mythology and the other thing that's incredible about it probably the most incredible aspect of the art entirely is the wisp of breath that's coming love out it. of the nostrils of the creature. Yeah, it's, love it. it. It's just an amazing piece from start to finish. It suggests a context that the the art doesn't deliver on exactly. Yes. You know, there's no other <laughs> cool, allusion to it. <laughs> yeah, a cold environment. Well, this card, for all the reasons you said and more, was actually had a pretty powerful effect on me as a player early on. And I, I know from anecdotal experience and just being a member of this community for a long time that it was the forerunner for a lot of people's appreciation of the Minotaur tribe, which admittedly didn't get much help in Magic's history to have any kind of relevant cards, any kind of just anywhere in decent relevant cards until pretty deep into the game. I think the first truly relevant and meaningful Minotaur really came out in Plane Chase with, uh, or sorry, Plane Shift with um, Tangarth, Talroom Hero, who was pretty <laughs> a pretty pushed to design for his day. And there have been many, many better Minotaurs since, and we finally got some Minotaur Lords in the last few years, and now you can actually build a tribal deck. But Minotaurs really suffered for a long time with a, a second-class uh, tribe that just didn't have good cards. It was almost entirely mono-red for Isn't the first several sad? years. With Isn't one that exception. sad how, mono, how Minotaur has been so marginalized as a tribe? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of remarkable given, uh, you know, I think ever ever since Didgeridoo was printed, <laughs> everyone wished that there would be awesome Minotaurs and they just have never gone for it. Well, it's been in the last few years that they finally made good on it. And really, I think it was Amonkhet that did it. There were a couple other noteworthy ones beforehand, but Neheb, the character of Neheb, produced really two awesome cards in Amonkhet. Neheb the Worthy, the black-red one, which is a great aggressive discard card, and it's also somewhat of a Minotaur Lord. And then Neheb the Eternal, mono-red, but a serious mana engine from uh that was from hour of devastation i think the neheb was a real great character and they've recently brought back tangarth 
in it was in a commander product but uh, a reimagining of of tangarth as well as well as a new neheb in war of the spark so those two characters combined with the planeswalker and the god mogis uh, minotaurs are getting better they're still almost entirely red so it's hard to build a deck you know they're secondary in black but at the same time You've got enough material now that you can build a decent Minotaur deck in EDH if you want. There's still a lot of real middling ones that are just for <laughs> for limited, though. It's a shame. Uh, red, red, one, we should say there aren't a lot of creatures that you can accelerate out of three mana mm-hmm. in, in alpha. Um, and red, red, one is a nice, you know, a nice spot. And two, three obviously has advantages in combat. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's especially noteworthy. Well, it, we've already talked about the importance of gray ogres and that and the, that size, and grizzly bears and that size, and especially in addition to that, the knights. You know, the white and black knights, mm-hmm. and then some other really pushed creatures like Hypnotic Specter. Two three was actually a really handy power and toughness in the alpha context, especially at low rarities, and could really tussle well with a lot of the creatures your opponents were playing, uh, barring buffs like giant growths and auras. For such an iconic card, I find it interesting this card was never printed past fifth. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? It was leveraging, the, you know, the iconic nature of it was leveraging the art, I think, really, really strongly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's just one of those things where, unlike Hill Giant, which was pushed far too deep into Magic's history for its own good, this one I think they just realized earlier than with many other staples that it uh, just couldn't, couldn't compete. There's a ma- Magic Arcana arcana article from 2008 entitled the face of the game and it they say wizards of the coast says when we say the face of magic what do you think of sarah angel mm-hmm. shivan dragon morrow well what if we were to tell you that for years <laughs> and years the face of the game was Herloon minotaur and one of the things they point out is that in the original early advertisements mm-hmm. so in addition to i i think it was it Herloon minotaur is on is it on one of the rule books or something? I can't. It was obviously in the packaging. I think of revised. It was on the packaging. It was also on a calendar. That's one of the calendar. things that I think of. It well, there was an early calendar for Magic that it was on. So what I was trying, what I wanted to say is that um, even before the game was published, there was an advertisement for Magic, in which it used Herloon Minotaur as a diagram, an example of Magic card, yeah. um, early on, and then also there is this famous um there's a famous denim jacket that was given in 1995 <laughs> to wizards employees with yeah. her minotaur on them and you'll sometimes see people playing those in old school events <laughs> those are awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah Herlin minotaur has uh yet another interesting reprint trajectory too you said it goes up through fifth edition but there's something even more important than that and that is it has never been reprinted in paper with any other art. <laughs> that and, would be sacrilegious. Maybe that's why they said we're never going to print this again. That yeah. would be good enough reason for me. There is there is a digital reprint, so to speak, because it's a card in what they're calling what they call the Arena Beginners set, which is obviously from Magic Arena. And so it's an introductory card for that, and it has different art because uh, you have to assume they lost the rights to the original. But in practice... And with one tiny digital exception, Hairplane Minotaur has always existed with this art, and uh, rightly so. All right, next up, Hurricane. XG, it's a sorcery, and it says all players and flying creatures suffer X damage. 
Uh, shout out to the word suffer there, which is hilarious and awesome. <laughs> Otherwise, pretty darn close to the current Oracle wording. Not much not much ambiguity, uh, ambiguity there. Hurricane, you already just alluded to it a couple minutes ago when we talked about X-Spells. You know, it's a, it forms a dyad with Earthquake in the alpha context, and it is noteworthy in, in Green's context, obviously, being the only X-Spell that deals damage in Green, and it has been a finisher in a lot of ways, similar to Red X-Spells in a lot of contexts throughout history. That's my... That's my feeling about it, and I want to talk about the art later on, too. What do you think about Hurricane, Steve? So Hurricane is fascinating. Uh, I I think it's probably less powerful than it looks, just in general. Um, it is one of the few ways the green has for direct damage. So that's why that's one of the reasons it's notable. So I think the significance of Hurricane is probably in the precedent it sets. The, the space, that little niche it carves out, Kevin, in the color yeah. pie that extends to If Biffafree, to Tornado, to, you know, you name it. I think that's probably the most significant part of it. Um, it's also yeah, weird, that's... though, because green is a decent flying color. So, you know, there's a little bit of dissynergy there. But. <laughs> well, you make good points all around. Green has flying creatures in Alpha, Scrib Sprites, Birds of Paradise, Cockatrice. The, uh, Scrib Sprites is really out of place in Alpha, right? And and that part of Green's identity was removed after the couple of printings in the early days of Magic. Green is not supposed to have the cheapest flyers, right? There's a reason why Flying Men is in, in Arabian Nights. At rare, obviously, green has a couple of, of noteworthy flyers. But Birds of Paradise, we know, was developed yeah. to to use an art piece and yeah, not as down. a statement of color pie for green in terms of cheap flyers. It just has flying, <laughs> right? It just has flying because well, it's a bird, and that's usually the case for Magic's history is that birds have flying. So otherwise, to your point, Hurricane is cementing green as an anti one of the two anti flying colors along with red. Red's implementation of anti-flying is in the form of Earthbind, which we've already reviewed. So it's it's interesting that Red has part of the anti-flying pie in Earthbind and also part of the anti-non-flying color pie in Earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you're right. It, it it puts Green in a strange position in the Alpha context because you could be understood to to view Green as as kind of tied with White as a as a secondary flying color. I guess. As you as you factor in rarity, it's really in third place, but it has three flying creatures in Alpha, and that's noteworthy. I also think that Hurricane's art is really is really awesome in its uh, the way it's evocative and simple at the same time. Right? It's unambiguously showing very very powerful winds on a shoreline, what looks like tropical trees being bent sideways, and yet the action is very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The action is very abstract. There's wind conveyed with just a lot of parallel lines and grays. There's wind conveyed with water lapping up on a tree, right? Which looks to be coming up strongly onto the beach since trees trees don't normally grow in the water, right? The suggestion is that water is very high right now. And that's kind of it, though. There's a couple of like horizontal raindrops that are, that are forefront in the image. It's the it's, beauty uh, of simplicity, Kevin. Yeah, it's a very simple piece, yet very powerful and evocative. Damien Willich, who is an artist that we haven't spoken about too many times yet, there we've already reviewed a couple of his cards: Castle, Chaos, Lace, Circle Protection, Blue, Control, Magic. We've re- reviewed basically most of Damien's cards <laughs> in Alpha already. 
Yeah, I like this card. It's always been a little awesome for me, partly because in my early days, it was one of the few good, consistent answers to the strong five mana four four flyers in the format, right? When you're playing Magic yep. and you're just playing cards I've got dot deck, Hurricane was a good pull from a pack and revise because it meant I could answer my <laughs> blue, white, and black opponents, all their, their, their excellent uncommon flyers. Even in early Magic, it's a way that green has to answer Hypnotic Spectre. Mm, also a valid point. And you could do it somewhat on curve if you've got an accelerant like Llanowar Elf. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked Hurricane in the early days. I thought it was pretty powerful. It, it slices and dices. We alluded to the card advantageous <laughs> aspects of Fireball. There's not too many ways to get card advantage. This is one of them. If your opponent has uh, a Sarah Angel or two and another Flyer, Birds of Paradise, Mesa Pegasus, whatever, the kind of combinations of creatures that we unfortunately had to play in the early days, uh, this could really mop up the playing field, and uh, I was pretty good at that. Also... It got interesting when you factored in other effects in green, like regeneration, or a set couple sets later with uh, killer bees. It's really, really mana inefficient, <laughs> but you can make it so that your killer bees lives through a hurricane and your opponent's creatures don't, which I did a couple of times in those early days. In terms of printing, hurricanes has a pretty storied history. Like it was in ABU, and then famously, famously. The Blue Hurricane in Summer, oh, the, yeah. the much, the much sought-after reprint. I forgot this card was part of one of the most infamous misprints yeah. in the history of Magic. <laughs> yeah, so in case you don't know, and most players do, but Blue Hurricane refers to the Summer Magic set, which was a temporary, not intentionally distributed printing of Magic between Revised and 4th Edition. It was like a test version of 4th, and there were some mistakes in it. One of them was that the card Hurricane was printed with a blue card frame. So it looks like a blue card, but it has Hurricanes, all of Hurricanes' abilities, and as well as a green mana cost, right, on a blue frame. Very stri- striking and interesting. And you'll see them if you go to Eternal Weekend and other kind of GPs and stuff. You'll see them in, in vendor cases sometimes. Anyway, aside from that, it was in 4th edition, and then it made it into some of the core sets, like Ice Age and Portal. The Portal Hurricane is a really cool-looking card. It was actually in Portal 1 and 2, which is unusual. Not many cards were in Portal 1 and 2, especially at Great the... Point. Especially at the rare kind of slot. Well, this is uncommon, but still, especially at the higher rarities. Then it was in 6th edition, 7th edition, and then 10th edition, which is kind of an interesting uh, staggered thing. And then never again, like uh, <laughs> 10th edition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so Hurricane wasn't reprint. Has it been in any of like the Commander products or something? You might have expected it to be in some of those things. There's only kind of one. Well, it was in the, <laughs> it was in the what is it, Deckmaster product which was a kind of a cool product, you know, for its day. And then it's been reprinted one other unusual time in uh, a set called Selvat in 2011. Have I don't you even ever know played what that with is. Hurricane in, in anything that you can remember? <laughs> uh, after my first couple of years of Magic, as I said, where I thought it was a decent card, no, I haven't ever since then. It's played in old school, right? It's, it's used as a finisher in some old school decks, I isn't it? I think so, but I can't recall actually seeing it. But I suspect if you trawled through old school list, you'd find it a couple yeah. of places. Yeah. And uh, how's it doing in Alpha Card 40? Well, it had a very prominent role in my finals match against Joel Mick. Yeah. <laughs> That's where all he, I'll say. Where he was <laughs> hold. He was I, for, was... I forget. Was he holding a hurricane and yeah. didn't play it I, and then drew a second hurricane well, on his final turn? Was, was that it? He was one or two mana away from killing me for many turns, and I kept icing his Llanowar Elves. Mm-hmm. And so he he was holding off on playing Hurricane because he was he like one land yeah he was like one land away from killing you or something right exactly 
Exactly. Yeah. And then I finally got his life low enough that he couldn't kill me. He would have to draw. And then he drew the second hurricane. So... <laughs> <laughs> So he was he was one mana away from drawing the game because he, he still couldn't hurricane for your whole life total. If he had done it for a middling amount and then drawn his hurricane on his last turn, he could have drawn the game and exactly. gone on to play another game. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty interesting. All right, Steve, let's talk about what is arguably one of the strongest creatures in Alpha. <laughs> yeah. Except no substitutes. We're talking about Hypnotic Spectre. 1BB, Summon Spectre. It has flying and it says, An opponent... Damaged by Spectre, must discard a card at random from his or her hand. Ignore this effect if the opponent has no cards in hand. Uh, it's a 2-2. God, two-two. what a beating this card is. <laughs> now, we've already talked about it a number of times. Like, the relationship between this card and Dark Ritual is famous. It's one of the strongest openings in the history of Magic, really. Yep. And and it's just has a, just a completely deleterious effect on any game that's going past the first couple of turns and that was most games in the early days right uh you know nightmare 99 notwithstanding so (laughs) (laughs) so steve i know you you have a lot of experience and a lot to say about i've been terrorized by this card i remember i mean back in 94 95 96 this was the card that i feared the most Mm. playing it's because it often came down to a very simple situation. You either had Swords of Plowshares in your opening hand, or you were just dead, basically. <laughs> I mean, the random element of it, it's its so... I mean, Discard moved away from randomness after the early years of the game. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's really hard to overstate how terrifying this card was. Like, for example, your opponent has Sinkhold you, or Strip Mind you, let's say Strip Mind you, and you know there's a Sinkhole coming... And you have that one land in your hand, and, and you, know, like you have six-card hand, and they attack you with Hypnotic Spectre. Please don't hit my planes. Please don't hit my Tundra. Please don't hit my island. You know, it's just... <laughs> right. It was just infuriating beyond words to get hit by Hypnotic Spectre. And Discard was a, I mean, discard was such a powerful element that they, you know, they made cards like Psychic Purge to punish it. And people had to do really silly... Discard was... Dedicated Discard was a very powerful strategy in the early years. And I can remember as late as, I think, 96... Just getting devastated by this card. Mm-hmm. Um, I have certainly played with it. So look, black decks anchored with Hippie have won at least one, maybe multiple Eternal Weekend, Eternal Central, uh, old school events um, around Hippie being one of the key cards. Um, I played this in my blue, red, black deck, and I specifically splashed black, basically just to cat play this Demonic Tutor and Mind Twist. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I played it at NoobCon. thought it was very good. I also had a Greed in my sideboard, which is phenomenal <laughs> against the deck, because bring that in, and you can just outdraw the deck very quickly. Um, but it's still just as powerful it was, as it was back in the day. I mean, there was a certain point where I think Suicide Black, Kevin, around 2000, basically stopped running this card. Um... You know, you just you needed to go for the throat rather than dirtle around. But there was yeah. a, a very, very long time, and re- this card had remarkable staying power. I, it basically outlasted Juzam as a playable card in the early years of the game. You know, Juzam kind of faded by by late '95, early '96. Juzam kind of disappeared. You know, it was no longer good enough. Um, but Hippie actually stayed around. Uh, I suspect yeah. that if you look, probably in like the first Invitational, it probably was there somewhere. 
uh, maybe even the second. And I think it was even good in standard. Just a very, very... I, I think in alpha, it's either the first or the second best creature in alpha. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. competitor, honestly, in my opinion, in Alpha League, if it constructed, is Jade Statue. And I go <laughs> back and forth trying to figure out what's more powerful. <laughs> you know, Hippie, <laughs> Hippie is just, it just dominates games. If it survives, it's by far more powerful a turn if it gets to attack once. Um, but it's, it's immensely powerful, just immensely so. And, and yes, it's because Dark Ritual exists. <laughs> But I, I played to... I played just hundreds of games against against it, and often just on the the wrong end of hypnotic specter. There's a complex relationship between hypnotic specter and dark ritual, but also hypnotic specter and random discard. Yes, him to Torok. Yeah, and yeah, him to Torok plus hypnotic specter and mind twist was just a devastating trifecta. The the reprint history of Hypnotic Spectre tells a t- tells a narrative, because uh-huh. it was in ABU <laughs> revised and fourth edition, right? Uh-huh. Then, then not again until ninth edition. I so remember that. Yeah, one of the and things they brought, that ha- they brought Jade Statue back in ninth too, I think. <laughs> right. One of the things that happened was the relationship and the the power and the connection between Hypnotic Spectre and Dark Ritual, especially once. Uh, Fallen Empires came in and Hypnotic uh, Turok came in was pretty clear to R&D. That's part of the reason why Hypnotic Spectre was discontinued after 4th edition. Unfortunately, Dark Ritual was, as we have alluded to already in this review, was viewed as a bit of a core part of magic for a couple more years beyond that. And so it was still in 5th edition and then the pseudo core sets, Ice Age, Mirage, Tempest, Saga, and up to, all the way up to Masks. Right, Magic R and D was still making the mistake that Dark Ritual is a healthy thing for Standard, all the way up to Masks Block, which is bizarre and, and a little inexplicable. Fortunately, it at least ended eventually. Hypnotic Spectre made a comeback then in Ninth Edition, and it was in Ninth, Tenth, and M Ten. Without the presence of Dark Ritual, it was not nearly as oppressive. And you'll yeah. note that Dark Ritual is not in any of those sets, so they they were smart <laughs> enough to at least not put those two cards together again in a core set. And so Dark uh, not Specter was much less impactful. But at the same time, then the the fact that Random Discard was still a real feel bad for players crept in, and they stopped printing Hypnotic Specter again. So there's kind of a strange interrelationship between those things. R&D didn't figure out that Dark Ritual was unhealthy for far too long, but they at least figured out that Ritual into Hippie was unhealthy after 4th edition. And that coincides with a lot of realizations about the game, so it's not all bad. That's that's excellent descriptive analysis. One of the things that I want to point out, uh, though, is that, as I recall, around 2000, maybe between like 2000 and 2004, there were a number of points where Magic the Gathering, Wizards of the, Wizards of the Coast, marketed its core sets, often on the back of the return of an old classic. Mm. So, like Hippie, like Sarah Angel, I recall them marketing, like, you know, basically, I don't know whether it was actually, like, ad language or just grapevine, you know, attempt right. to sales but they would they would often try and sell because this was at a time you know now corsets all have a sprinkling of new cards which is very smart because it allows them to 
Yeah. And those are the selling points usually. Those are the selling points now. But back then, they were like, you know, we're bringing back Sarah Angel. Ooh. And then it would land with a thud and was kind of disappointing. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you, this icon, the, the iconic card lose, lost some of its luster when it was reprinted into a new environment in which it just wasn't nearly as good. You know what I mean? Right, right. I think Hypnotic Spectre suffered from that. And and all you know what's interesting as well is all of the all of the iterations of Hypnotic Spectre, um, Abyssal Spectre. Uh, there was a blue black one in uh, I don't know. Yeah, plane that was plane sh- shift. Pla- that was in plane shift. Yeah. Yeah, all those versions just were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there have been yeah. That's a good point. As I'm liked, as I'm interested in pointing out. The notion that discarding a creature that when it deals damage to you causes you to discard, those are so strongly um, associated with specters now, and it's because of this card, right? Yeah. Um, You made a fair point. There have been many, many others uh, also that followed that same pattern. So uh, a short history of them includes (laughs) in Mirage Dread Specter, which is a terrible card, Tainted Specter in... uh, also in Mirage, Entropic Spectre, Shrieking Spectre in Starter. Then there was a Sorcery, Spectre's Whale, which is a discard effect in Masks. Doomsday Spectre was the one you were talking about, yes, the blue-black in, in Plane Shift. Yeah, Silent Spectre, Hollow Spectre, Needle Spectre, Whispering Spectre. Like, yeah, this Jeez. is whole history. One of the more a famous ones was, progeny. <laughs> uh, was Blazing Spectre, which is the, oh, the one yeah. with haste, the four-mana one with haste, which was, which was yeah. pretty good, yeah. And there's many more since then. And so this notion of specters being creatures that cause discard is it all goes back to Hypnotic Specter. And they're all about the same. Like almost all of them are three or four mana. And many of them trigger on combat damage, although they've started to trigger on entering the battlefield more recently. Yeah. You know, there's a larger point I want to make, actually. Uh, you know, so so yes, Hypnotic Spectre. You you earlier in this set review, you did you know the the progeny. When has the progeny been stronger? When has it been weaker? Clearly, uh, this has been a devolution in terms of Hypnotic Spectre. It hasn't gotten improvements. In its <laughs> oh, that's it's, true. Yeah, and its descendants. But the point that I want to make is that Alpha itself has precious few what we today call utility creatures. Mm, you know, you get true. when. When alliances came out, one of the most you know for the for the uh, subsequent four years, one of the most important creatures from alliances ended up being Gorilla Shaman, because there was really nothing quite like it. You know, Mox Monkey, something that was a utility creature, and you you got iterations of this. You know, you got Dwarven Miner uh, in I think ninety seven, but even even through like really invasion and later there were very few creatures that we would just call i mean there the the blossoming the full blooming of what we would call like hate bears really doesn't even happen until the middle of the aughts you know and then you start getting things like gadok teague uh joden grunt you know all these other creatures uh, culminating in like thalia you know but it is remarkable when you think about it that there are so few creatures that have spell-like effects, right? I mean, that's why Morphling was such a powerhouse for so long, because it did all these things that, that were built-in abilities. Um, but but really, just what I mean by utility creatures are creatures that have disruptive effects when they, when they either come into play 
activate abilities or upon attacking, right? And and Ophidian was monstrously powerful and, and, and dominated all sorts of formats for a long time because of that ability, right? The inverse of Hypnotic Spectre. And it took it took magic design an incredibly long time to reach that realization. Kind of shockingly long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, because Hypnotic Spectre is the first real utility creature in Alpha. It's, it's I mean, you get, yeah, there's Northern Paladin, you know, there's a few, Royal Assassin, <laughs> but but in terms of abilities to, to interact with an opponent off the board, or even on the board in a mass way, there's really nothing that I can think of between Hypnotic Spectre and Gorilla Shaman. So, to quantify that in a little more literal terms there are nine creatures in alpha that have a triggered ability of some kind nine of them some of those triggered abilities are 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 negative the two blue ones pirate ship and and sea serpent are because they have island home their triggered (laughs) abilities are to sacrifice me when i don't have islands pirate ship has two sorry go ahead (laughs) yeah you're right activated two in terms of beneficial abilities really there's only seven and half of those are green because half of them are Green creatures, cockatrice in Thicket Basilisk have their triggers on, to kill yeah. things. Fungusaur, as we recently reviewed, has its trigger to grow. And uh, Verdurin Enchantress has its trigger to draw, which is a big one, right? For many reasons. Beyond the green, there's only Hypnotic Spectre, Sanger Vampire, and then Personal Incarnation, which is a weird one, right? And that never really saw any play. So in terms of true utility, you can take out Personal Incarnation, you can take out the blue ones completely. You're right, there's only these green and black creatures, and in terms of creatures that were really used for their utility, then that list is even shorter, right? Because there's only two of these that cost three mana, the right. Hippie and the Verduran. <clears throat> the rest of them are, are four or five mana, right? And so at four or five mana, you have to start looking deep into what that card's going to do for you. You know, and then and if you go through the expansions, right? I mean, you have plenty of hype. Arabian Nights is mostly known for hyper-efficient creatures. Gazban mm-hmm. Ogre, you know, Urnum Jin, Juzum Jin, so on and so forth. A Curd Ape. You do have, like, King Suleiman, but that's just a variant of Royal Assassin, right? And Gwendolyn de Corsi, a, va- a variant of, of that. Yeah. Even, yeah. even um, in Legends, uh, Rabinia Soulsinger is just a variant of that, right? You really don't have true utility creatures. It, it, you know, Trike is just a variant of Prodigal Sorcerer, in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. You really don't get to utility creatures... You know, Deep Spawn isn't even one of those. That just has a, a bit of a, uh, a morphling built in and a little bit of mill. A little bit of it's a little bit of dredge and a little bit of yeah. <laughs> morphling. But you really don't get a true utility creatures li- like, you know, like a disruptive utility creature like Hypnotic Spectre until I think is it, it, until Gorilla Shaman, a kind of a broad utility creature. Maybe yeah, I'm skipping I'm some about- things though. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking about in the alpha context. We've already reviewed demonic hordes. That's a big one, but it's, so being a utility creature at six mana is hard to is hard to yeah. sell, right? Similar Gaia's Reach, right? At six yeah. mana, utility kind of goes out the window. But you're right; the list is actually pretty short. It, you can mess with creatures in the alpha context to the tune of dwarven warriors, nettling imp, orcish artillery, prodigal sorcerer, right? That kind of but stuff. But they're all combat based or ping. That's right. That's right. In terms of monkeying with other things on the board in any kind of meaningful way, demonic hordes, dwarven demolition team. <laughs> and then mana producers, in terms of activated abilities, mana producers, that's really kind of it. Yep. Stone Giant stands out as a weird one. 
<laughs> we'll talk about that later. But yeah, you're right. The, the, your point is well made. There, True utility, especially things outside of combat, is a, definitely rare and definitely but, not and definitely not just in alpha. But I'm trying to make a larger point. It extends actually far beyond alpha. Right. That there's right. a dearth of this kind of design approach of creatures yeah. that can do spell like a things. You know. And then you amplify that by how just how efficient Hypnotic Spectre is, and it stands head and shoulders above all these other things. Yeah, I think it's probably just the best creature in alpha writ large. If, when you combine all of the, when you combine everything, when you combine struct, constructed play in old school and every old school format. When yeah. you combine, you know every every aspect of play, limited through all the versions of Type One, you know old school ninety three, ninety four. I think it's just probably the best. You know, in Alpha League, Jade Statue might be slightly better, but th- not those in two, old school. Yeah, not in old school. No, Jade Jade Statue had its days. It, you know, had its moment. I don't want to deny that, but that was mostly like in. 93, 94. It's very possible the Jade Statue was underplayed in old school 93, 94. I can yeah. easily see that. Um, but in terms of... Look, Jade Statue also was quite powerful because it was very good with things like Balance and Wrath and, <laughs> and uh, the Abyss. And even as late right. as 96, I think Jade Statue saw some play. You know, like, it, with, if you could play... In the, in the time in which you could play for Balance, Jade Statue was absurd. Um, Naturally. But um, and that was for a while, right? Balance wasn't restricted until you know year and a half, two years in. Um, but yeah, I, I think Hypnotic Spectre, holistically speaking, is just the best creature in Alpha. I would say I agree with you. I would say that if it weren't for the Moxin and other completely broken accelerants in Alpha specifically, Birds of Paradise would give Hypnotic Spectre a run for its money. But Birds of Paradise is competing so strongly with zero mana artifacts yeah. that every deck has access to that it just can't yeah. shine the way it should. Yeah, Birds of Paradise has certainly seen a million years of constructed play. Um, but I think I think the pr- part of the problem with Birds is that even where Birds has seen play, it's usually seen play with El- uh, Lenoir Elves. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of, you Granted. know, like for example, in, in Fire, the standard Fires deck, you know, the deck had eight of the mana rocks, you know? Um, yeah. So birds, birds is, is certainly up there from a constructed perspective. If, if you count all the iterations of standard, but I think hypnotic specter was also really good in, in the early iterations of standard. Didn't it, yeah. it was, wasn't one of the first world champion, the first 95 world championship black. And did, did it not have hypnotic? Maybe you can look that up real quick. Yeah, Steve. The so after '94's World Championship, which was won by Zach Dolan with ostensibly a blue-white green control deck, the second World Championship, won by Alexander Blumka, uh, was a multicolor aggro control deck that featured four hymns, three hypnotic specters, four dark rituals, and three creatures? copies of the rack. I mean, what other in creatures? terms of. Yeah, in terms of creatures, it was just Hypnotic Spectre in there the main, go. plus uh, one Royal Assassin and two Sanger Vampires. <laughs> so, yeah. so utility creatures and a little bit of beef. Uh, yeah. no, I th- look, this card has won a world championship. Mm-hmm. What? How many cards from Alpha have won world championships? You know, Obviously, the 94 world championship and the 93 world championship, which was won by, what was it, a, a juggernaut and, or some silly thing. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So so look, this is a world championship winning deck. Uh, it's actually know, won another one. It actually, ironically, was in the 2007 world championship 
by in the hands of Uri Pelig, which was a Doran rock deck. Wow. So an Abzan, an Abzan deck that featured Birds of Paradise, Doran, one Hypnotic Spectre, Lanaror Elves, wow. Oren Viper, Shriekmaw, and Tarmogoyf. What a weird creature selection. <laughs> well, so there's a lot of great creatures in Alpha that have done great things over the years, right? Birds of Paradise, Juggernaut has certainly earned its its keep. It was in I, I think Juggernaut was in let's see, the vintage championship workshop decks that have won were only two workshop decks have won the vintage championship. Um, Roland Chang's deck in 2005, and then uh, Montolio's Montolio. deck. Yeah, yeah, neither had Juggernaut. Um, but Juggernaut has certainly, you know, look, earned its keep over the years. Sarah Angel in one of the best decks of all time, Birds of Paradise, and plenty of winning decks. But I think at the end of the day, I think Hypnotic is the best. It, it, certainly in the Alpha context, old school context, in Alpha specifically, it's between Jade Statue and Hippie. In the larger context, it's probably between Birds, Llanowar Elves, and or Hippie. Um, but I think I think because the substitutability factor of Elves and Birds, I mean, which is just emphasized or underscored by the point you just made, right? That that deck had both Elves and Birds. I think yeah, that makes. Yeah. I think that gives Hippie the edge. This card existed exactly as it was printed in Alpha in Gamma as well. Three mana, two black, two two flying. If it damages an opponent, they discard a card at random. Remarkable. No, yeah. The there's a couple of things I want to point out too. The art. <laughs> so Doug Schuler, uh, obviously an iconic piece of art. It, it, it's uh, completely devoid of context as usual, <laughs> but at the same time, it has a a nice in between kind of ephemeral yet realistic depiction of this the, the metal that comprises this character's armor it, it uh, it's it's menacing with its broad shoulders and its red eyes and it's uh it's a weapon that is poised at the ready yet poised with uh, held without hands which i think adds to its menace <laughs> it which i love and it's also got this wispy uh, you know, uh, bottom half of its body that's also flying in from the distance, which uh, conveys a bit of action, right? Like it just arrived to menace you. It's I just love this art. Cool I also like art. how it's asymmetrical too. The armor is not the same on on both sides, which I don't know if that's meant to evoke anything in particular, but I think it's noteworthy. What? A yeah, cool I just art. love the look of this card. I also want to point out that it's <laughs> it's not it doesn't have a place really in Magic's uh, uh, aesthetic anymore but this card was printed as a magic player rewards card in 2006 in an really an, uh, it was it's an updated frame so it's not an old, it's not an original frame but it's also not a brand new frame like it's got it's a, it's a kind of a hybrid frame but it has the original art so you can actually get a foil original art hypnotic specter and it it's actually legitimately beautiful it's really cool huh Culturally speaking, old school doesn't promote foils at all, even though you could, I guess, technically play this this original art in foil in old school if you wanted to. Um, but I figure if you're the sort of player who maybe has this in a in an EDH deck for fun or whatever, the foil version is both beautiful and really affordable. It's only like four or five bucks. I don't, I don't know why. It's such a beautiful card. It's also weird that it was printed in Player Rewards in 2006, which is a seven-card series, and... It's this Hypnotic Spectre and then six other textless cards. <laughs> Hinder, Pyroclasm, Giant, Growth, Lightning, Helix, Zombify, Putrefy. It's really bizarre, the set of player rewards from 2006. I don't know why that happened the way it did, but I'm not complaining. And just in general, Hypnotic Spectre is just an incredibly beautiful card, in my opinion. 
Steve, do you have nice? Do you have nice blackboarded hypnotic specters? If if by alpha if by nice you mean alpha, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> All right, let's move on from hypnotic specter to ice storm. Ice storm is a simple card. Two G sorcery. Destroy any one land. Uh, also, another wording that's pretty close to its oracle text just of destroy target land ice storm obviously forms uh, a bit of a triad and, and beyond actually with stone rain and sinkhole in the alpha context uh, and kind of dovetailing a little bit with the gaia's liege demonic hordes pairing as well in terms of land destruction or manipulation and relating to black's many ways to do that ice storm stands out for me in the sense that it positioned green as a land destruction color early, but it was never printed beyond unlimited. After the unlimited era, green moved into hating on non-basic lands far more often. And so the ice storm stands out as an unusual <coughs> aspect of green's land destruction throughout the, the history of magic. Uh, I never was really a big fan of this card, although it, one of my early opponents in Magic was big into the, the Jund <laughs> land, destruction land Destruction deck, and I had this cast against me a whole bunch of times in my early days. <laughs> and what was your memory of that? Was it upset, unhappy? Well, or? well, yeah, again, I'm very early in Magic at this point. This is the Kevin that is, you know, thinks Howl from Beyond is really unfair. Like, <laughs> So <laughs> in, in, in Land Destruction, obviously, is, is uh, has a very strong stigma in the magic community even to this day which mostly manifests in casual formats and edh right but throughout history in my growing up with the game land destruction was viewed as a boogeyman of the game right it was a thing that you did to to really hose someone it was just sometimes viewed as far too powerful and there's a reason why these effects don't exist at three mana in magic really anymore and and so i grew up with that stigma against land destruction i never was attracted to it myself for whatever reason but i do remember many formats and many casual games uh being just oppressed by land destruction in the early days yeah yeah no unfortunately land destruction was a very so there were these kind of thematic decks or strategies not decks but strategies that really were prominent in the early days of magic you know so con- permission as it was called before now we call it control um, there really weren't a lot of aggro control decks as we conceptualize them today because there wasn't force of will. Um, but among <laughs> the, there was like burn, there were like the speed aggro decks or the weenie decks as we called them. Um, and there was discard and there were land destruction decks and God land destruction. It was hard to tell what was more annoying land destruction or discard. <laughs> the discard <laughs> decks were, you know, use right. the rack, you know, like, along the lines you just described, but the, um, the land destruction decks were brutal, Kevin. I mean, between four mm-hmm. strip mine, sinkhole, and then usually they either played, usually they played, in my experience, they were black red, and they would play stone rain and sinkhole, and then ice quake when that was printed with, with ice age, and then. Oh, yeah, black that made a big difference. Yeah, you didn't need green anymore. Right. And, and then often, you know. They could use whatever wind condition they wanted, but they'd have fire. I mean, uh, lightning bolt for efficient removal. Yeah, my my experience was that they were juggernaut decks as well. Yeah, they could use juggernaut or juice them. Yeah. Um, but my, my god, they were brutal. I mean, you could have <laughs> games, and it was also at a time where people didn't have the hyper. Ge- well, it existed, but the hyper geometric distribution wasn't readily available online to calculate the optimal, <laughs> the optimal right, mana right. configuration, and mana was much worse. You know, I, everything changed after Onslaught. You, you had to build, if you were playing a two or three color deck, 
you especially three or four colors, you had to figure out exactly what the dual land configuration was you wanted. Sometimes you'd have to play pain lands even, you know, and then City of Brass was generally the anchor of even three color decks. You needed four, you know, even two color decks would need a couple of cities to to get color consistency, which is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Until until Ice Age came out, City of Brass was just basically an every non monocolor deck, which is unbelievable. Um, but but I say all that to say that this was a time in '94, especially in early '95, there were no well worn heuristics for how much land you needed in a deck. It wasn't uncommon. Mm-hmm that players would go into a tournament with 60-card decks playing 21 land. I mean, 21 mm-hmm. total mana. 22 total mana. You know, mm-hmm. woefully inadequate quantities and, and of a, mana. And a high curve. We're not talking about a, a grow yeah. deck with one and two mana spells throughout. No, we're talking about decks with Sarah Angels and 20 lands. <laughs> yes. And people would play those decks and just not understand and, and then get totally mana screwed from strip mines. You know? Mm-hmm. But you didn't you didn't know you really didn't know so and it doesn't help that alpha features full-on three targeted land destruction spells plus other things that function to support land destruction like discard you know like even though it's not a (laughs) one-to-one theme a hypnotic specter is still a great card in a deck that's going to sinkhole you well not only does it not help but that's that was part of part of the problem (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so that's another thing i wanted to point to is just how for some reason, these land destruction spells were not only spread throughout the set of Alpha, that is Stone Rain, Ice, uh, Ice Storm, Sinkhole, they're also, none of them were rare. Two of them are common. Yes, they're right? very available. Which is which made it easy to build this kind of deck, and it didn't help that Dark Ritual was a common too, and so, yeah, it must be a little inconsistent if you're using three colors sometimes, but the, the fact remains is that these are cards we had. <laughs> right. I actually think that the fact that that Ice Storm was an uncommon, while Sinkhole was a common, was part of the problem. That Sinkhole mm-hmm. was the more nefarious card. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So it wasn't difficult, especially in the revised context. Yes, you needed support from a mana standpoint. So it, it made your deck much better if, as you said, you were playing City of Brass and Dual Lands and Birds of Paradise. But at the same time, it didn't take much to punish someone who was bringing one of those... 20 land 60 card decks to the table that was the thing is i was my my the person i was playing against who who really uh, beat this lesson into me was a good deck builder for the early days of the game by comparison and a better deck builder than i was because his deck was far more efficient streamlined you know fours of and and, and a really strong plan where my decks were still really unfocused and the threats were were four and five mana and the answers were not efficient you know i wasn't maximizing my lightning bolts and swords which made them even worse because pinpointing destruction with strip mine Mm -hmm. just made you could cut your opponent off from a color and then from like half the cards in their hand Mm -hmm. it was super Mm -hmm. frustrating Speaking of things that have been phased out, I have to say I'm quite thankful that land destruction has been phased out of Magic to a, to a large extent. I, I, I don't. I, I, there's a part of me that misses the era of having a viable land destruction deck, just because I'm nostalgic for that time. But mm-hmm. there's a much larger part of me that's like, thank God this doesn't exist. Now that isn't to say that that the concept of they're still taxing right decks, <laughs> which are quite powerful. And, well, and, and, and as vintage players, you know, wasteland is omnipresent. Yeah. True. Uh, Ice Storm, yeah, though, a... is amazing art. And it looks gorgeous in beta and alpha frame. I was going to say exactly that. It's 
it's not as simple as the it's it's as simple in composition as hurricane is right but it's not nearly as simple in execution there's actually a lot of detail here and there's a really interesting composition in that the the figure their their hand is in the foreground and their shield is held up to the wind and in a way that is very natural for a person to do in a context like they are in potentially And there's also still a lot of texture and detail to fur clothing and leather gloves and a, a nice beard and with, with snow and ice in the beard. I mean, there's a lot of good detail here. It's pretty pretty awesome. Definitely. Also, it's another Dan Fraser piece that has an actual real background, not the swirly art background. <laughs> yeah. It's not... It's not context in terms of a locale or anything going on that places the character, but it's still context in terms of the action, which is very effective. Yeah, Steve, in in summary, I have a lot of experience with Ice Storm, but not a lot of affection for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. You you might have more experience with Ice Storm than me, even though I've played it in, in a number of different things. Yeah, well, it didn't serve the test of time, so my experience is all in the early days when it was, I think, far better than it is in most contexts today. Right. Even in all the recapitulations of old-school magic. Also, just I, we don't think we put a point on this, but land destruction being distributed in, in three colors, that that did not carry through very long. It was quickly removed out of green. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I alluded to that at one point, and that uh, when green destroys lands now, it doesn't... For one thing, it doesn't destroy lands really much anymore, but the only ways it really does it is to punish non-basics. And there's another... The evolution of that became cards like uh, the Hall of Gemstones in the Mirage block, I think, where green was making your non-basic lands not as effective, or like Primal Order, I think, that punished you for having non-basic lands. Yeah, Uh, But you're right, the destruction element quickly left green. We should mention, though, that Thermocarst did exist, but... Oh, that's right. It made it up into Ice Age, at least. Boy, this is a big one. <laughs> right. This next card is, I know it's a personal favorite of yours uh, from all, all through time, and it's uh, one that I really like as well, too. This is Icy Manipulator, except no substitutes. Icy Manipulator is a four-mana artifact. It's a mono artifact. And in the alpha context, it says, one, colon, you may tap any land, creature, or artifact in play on either side. <laughs> a nice return to some strategic advice there. In case you uh, weren't paying attention during our Howling Mine review, Icy Manipulator plus Howling Mine produces a nice combo. So it's nice that the Icy Manipulator and Alpha gives you that little bit of advice. This card, Steve, has it all. It is a beautiful card. It has been very good in many, many contexts, uh, old and new. It uh, has like, some iconic art. It's it's it just a little bit. It has some rules ambiguity. You know, this <laughs> this card has just a little bit of everything. It's it's fantastic, right? It slices it's and dices. Perfect encapsulation of Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> it really kind of is. Yeah, it's fantastic. Where do you want to begin? I want to begin with the art, and then we'll. There's a lot to say about its applicate the card's application and its history. But is there a? I mean, we yes, Herlin Minotaur is the face of magic for a while, but. Is there a is there a more powerful, evocative, iconic piece of art, enduring, iconic piece of art in Alpha? And if so, what is it? <laughs> Seriously, this is a serious question. Uh, this is very high on my list. Uh, what's so what's I, even I'm, in competition in a, with it? May, do the short list. So it's my my answer to this question is powerfully colored by vintage magic, and sure. so. 
I have a strong opinion that the Black Lotus and the Five. Podcast, so go for it. Well, no, I know, but my point is simply that my opinion on icy predates my opinion on vintage. And that's part of my answer is complicated uh. for that reason. And that's because when I started, I didn't buy into Alpha. I bought into Revised. And so Icy Manipulator was still, you know, a strong... It, well, I mean, there was... Obviously, Icy's not in Revised. But the point is, is that it was still lingering from Unlimited <laughs> in easier-to-get quantities, right? You could still see Unlimited Icy's hanging around in people's decks and binders. And then it came back in... Ice Age, right? Yeah. So there's that. I don't element. want to talk about that yet. Let's hold on. To no, that I know. Part. But, but, but my point is, I'm comparing this very strongly to the mana producers, to, to, to the Black Lotus yeah. and the Moxen and the Soul Ring. So it, it stands with that crowd in my eyes. And there's a lot of art that I just look at and think, this typifies Alpha. And so I don't. Those cards are on that list, but this scores very, very highly on that this, list. Looking at As this we're card, reviewing these, there's so many cards on that list, though. <laughs> well,. So looking at this card and studying it, it almost makes me want to weep. It's just so beautiful <laughs> and so powerful and so strong. So great. It's, it really does. Um, the cards that the, 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 so the cards that stand out to me as the most iconic out of Alpha, I think, are a very, very short list. I think it comes down to me, the three, just from a scan of the set, I think the three that stand out are Siobhan Dragon, Chaos Orb, and Icy Manipulator. Yes, the the Moxen and Soul Ring are very powerful, but I think I think frankly, the Moxen are beautiful, but you know, almost kind of too well worn to be associated with Alpha in any powerful way. You know what I mean? They I just, see your point. I see your point. Um, sure. Also, Black Lotus I think is is iconic and and, and alluring. But I wouldn't call it like a masterpiece of fantasy art. <laughs> oh no, far from it. This one yeah. definitely scores higher on that. On that, yeah, scene. it's it's a little you know, Black Lotus does not. The art does not. It's iconic, yes, but it doesn't match its stature in some way. Yeah. Um, I would put Demonic Tutor onto your list very highly. In fair, my opinion. fair. It really says Alpha to me. Right. I I I just think Icy Manipulator is probably at the pinnacle on my list. The only thing that competes <laughs> with it, as I said, I think Chaos Orb is the most old school defining card because mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. it is the only card that's literally legal and old school that's legal and nothing else. <laughs> right, right. You know, so it's so definitive in that respect. But I think Icy Manipulator is the definition of like the poster child for iconic in Alpha. And it's got so much this mysterious orb, this enigmatic and, and slightly uh, villainous hand, um, the, the background, the storms in the background, even the jagged signature. It's just, and, and then the lack of, you know, the cloudy, the, the both crystal clear surface, but lack of reflection back, suggesting mm-hmm. the interiority of it or the absorption of the background into the interior. It's simple in composition, but immensely powerful. You 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 almost get a sense that this like bronzed hand is is uh, clawed in some way. You know, you don't see the claws, but you feel it. It's just it's incredible. And what I think is the coup de gras for me is the dis- the the powerful difference between the alpha and beta. And what's amazing about that difference is they are both immensely compelling in their own unique way. Yeah. 
It's yeah, like, this card is on the on the short list of compelling and powerful differences between the two printings. But what's amazing is usually there's a I have a strong opinion. You know, like the alpha is clearly better, the beta is clearly better. You know, right, the, right, right. we've talked about how the beta, the cards that were corrected have this much darker coloration coloring mm-hmm. in beta. But this is one of those cases where it's it's they're both amazing and almost feel like different cards because they're so different. Uh, and the, the you know and I have two of each, and oh my god, Kevin! And I think <laughs> I think part of what the, the what tinge what really solidifies it for me, or the, the what's is there's this tinge that I never owned an alpha or a beta back when I was a teenager mm. of this card. I think the most I ever owned was an unlimited at one point, and then when Ice Age came out. You know, when I, that was part of the selling point for Ice Age was that oh my god, Ice Manipulator is going to be reprinted. Right, right. And then when the preprint came out, it was this awful Rube Goldberg image. You know, it's like contraption. <laughs> it was like, oh my god! And I think actually, the reprint of Ice Age of Ice Age Manipulator in Ice Age, with the art being so forgettable, like immediately forgettable, made the iconic stature of this card grow e- enormously to me. Even though the card kind of faded from playability fairly quickly, I think that fact made it enormously powerful is as a lasting impression. And so to, to you know maybe five years ago when I when I bought two alpha and two betas to get to four original, it just felt so much sweeter. Um, yeah, I think this is the to me if I was going to show anyone an, a card and a magic card without you know saying here's the you know from alpha without saying here this is this card is absurdly valuable. Right, but just to kind of give them a sense of the fantasy flavor feel, I think it would come down to this card or Shivan Dragon. I like it. I like it. I I'm in- incredibly satisfied to hear your your depiction of that and what it means to you. The card do you, also. Do you, ha- do you own by any of these in Black Border, Kevin? I have a single beta. And it's signed by Doug Schuler, and it's beautiful. It is, it is a very prized card. <laughs> it needs to be put uh, into a trophy case. It's so gorgeous. <laughs> I, I'm one of the people who who prefers the darker saturation on those cards that where there's a significant variant, and so I, I'm firmly in the camp of I love the beta version. But your point about the alpha version being also very compelling and for slightly different reasons is well made. I just love looking at this card. I mean, there's no two ways about it. The I, I share your disappointment with the Ice Age reprint. It's a, a cool thing that it was reprinted, and the Ice Age art has its own value in, in different ways. It is, in many senses, a little bit more menacing in terms of what it's really depicting, right? But at the same time, it's just far more playful and cartoony than the implied menace of the Alpha Beta art. The thing I love about the Alpha Beta art is there's a disconnect that implies some things that are really up to the viewer for me. And that is, what is it about this orb that makes it an icy manipulator? What is it (laughs) that makes it do what it does? Because if a person were to approach me with what appears to simply be a reflective ball, (laughs) I would not you know, normally be menaced, right? If a person simply held up their ball to me and said, now I'm going to do something to you, I would 
I, I would not know what to expect and it would not be very menacing in my opinion. However, <laughs> given what I know about this card and its power and its universality, right? It's very, very, very flexible it, both conceptually and in practice and its implementation throughout the years. It has served many roles and proactive and defensive. And the fact that it is so multifaceted and so powerful and so simple and elegant, just it's very, very satisfying to me. I just love it. No, there's no doubt about it. I, I just think in terms of the... Look, all magic art has a little bit of mystery about it. Like, what is the Black Lotus? Why is it so powerful? You know, and I think that the mystery is part of what adds to the allure. So yeah. I think you can just assume this is a very powerful object that can be manipulated, <laughs> you know, a magical orb that can be manipulated for great great purposes. Um, what I, wa- I want to... S- so... IC Manipulator is not just an iconic art, it's also an iconic and historically significant card. So the first thing to say, you know, we talked about Gloom being the predecessor to the first taxing effect in Magic. IC Manipulator Winter Orb is basically the first prison combo concept. Now, in Zach Dolan's original 94 deck, he had 94 World Championship deck, he had basically all the rudiments of what would become the, the components of prison. Right, he had stasis, as I recall, and karma. Um, you know, uh, Sarah Angel to attack through the. You know, even though everything's tapped, um, I think he had Winter Orb and Ice. Let me just pull up his deck and stop jabbering about. It. Let me be certain what I'm saying. Yes, he had he had Meek Stone and Winter Orb, Stasis and Kismet, Howling Mine, Icy Manipulator, and Winter Orb. He also had, by the way. Uh, Lay Druid, Birds of Paradise, Time Elemental, which was a great combo, great old combo with uh, with Stasis. Mm-hmm. But but so he was playing a prison deck. But the point is that Icy Manipulator and Winter Orb is basically the most fundamental original prison concept in Magic, right? And yeah. Icy Manipulator was just is just so incredibly versatile to be able to hold off an attacker indefinitely to be able to. You know, ping an opponent's city of brass to be able to hold them off a color of mana, um, to be able to you know clear off a defender to swing in, whatever the use case to to, to tap a howling mind to tap um, winter orb as we already said you know just it is incredibly useful in its sheer potentiality. One of the things I reasons I feared unrestricting Mishra's workshop in old school ninety four was because I just feared that. A four Suchi, four Juggernaut, four Trike, four Tetravis, four Icy Manipulator, four Winter Orb deck would just be too good. You know, that you could probably splash a little bit of blue for copy artifacts, things like that. And the Icy Manipulator was part of the reason I was scared. Because sure, you don't have spheres of resistance, but Workshop can, you know, Workshop can help you accelerate out Icy's very quickly. And then use it to tap down your opponent's mana, and then eventually Winter Orb to keep things asymmetrical. Um, now that fear has has not really it, workshops haven't dominated old school, but I still think they're very powerful. Part of the reason they've been kept in check is because of <laughs> energy flux <laughs> um, <laughs> is so good. Um, but Kevin, I, I just think I, I see Manipulator with with Winter Orb, you know, with the, the Prison archetype in general has a lot of potential synergies. I think it it's it's basically look, I played I really enjoyed playing a, a blue white prison deck with relic or relic barrier, icy manipulator and winter orb. And the relic barrier could either tap down your own winter orb or could tap down your opponent's moxen 
but it's it's a very powerful concept. And then the Ice Age Manipulator does double duty because not only can it tap down the Winter Orb, it can also tap the lands that your opponent untaps. So mm-hmm. if you get a pair of Ices, use one to tap down the Winter Orb on your opponent's end step and the other to untap whichever land they, they untap in their upkeep. And you can keep them really locked down. Well, and don't forget too, and I know you're not forgetting this, but you haven't said explicitly that when all goes wrong, the IC can also play defense on creatures, right? I did Just... say that at the beginning, but yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in addition to all of the mana restriction and other manipulation that... Uh... In no pun intended, that you've got available to you. It's just the flexibility is just so powerful that if you need it to play another role on the fly, it does that as well. Part of the well said. Part of the fun. It's, it's just incredibly versatile. But one part of the fun of playing old school, Kevin, has been exploring these older environments and finding new nooks and crannies. And one of the one of the things I found most exciting is the exploration and prol- proliferation of prison, alternative prison strategies. So two in particular stand out. One has been, well, first of all, uh, Tabernacle of Pendrel Vale is very good in any of these strategies because with Winter Orb, <laughs> it's very hard for an opponent to keep their creatures out for very long. They're going right. to go away. Right. Um, but that's just a general discovery. I don't think Tabernacle was recognized for the powerhouse back in the day that it, <laughs> that it's, it is recognized to be today. And that um, was the basis for my one and only old school deck. Right, exactly. The, the, living, the living Lands Tabernacle deck. Yes, yes. I was going to drive towards that, but also two other enchantments that are very powerful with IC Manipulator in prison decks are Mana Vortex and Land Equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Two mm-hmm. enchantments that people really didn't play back in the day. I have no memory of them playing, and yet are devastating yeah. combo pieces um, yeah. in a Winter Orb, Ivory, you know, IC Manipulator slash Howling Mind deck. With black vies, there's just no doubt that the the early game was flush with, I would argue, too many stacks like components. <laughs> there's just no two ways about it. I mean, we talked about this in terms of hosers, you know, the flash fires and hurricanes and conversions of the world, but those are just those are just a drop in the bucket compared to all the different ways that you had to completely disrupt and dominate your opponent's ability to cast spells. I mean, we, we've already alluded to, and history has shown, that Sphere of Resistance was a real watershed moment in terms of the design of stacks oh, components, yeah. and it, it factors strongly in our definition of those things, and that's why we call them taxing effects now for the most right. part. But they are not the beginning. I mean, it all nope. goes back to Alpha, and disrupting your opponent's mana was built into the game by Richard Garfield, for better or for worse. Just to emphasize that, the original version of what we call stacks, which is the first deck in vintage and then type one that included the combination of smokestack, sphere of resistance, and tangle wire, that trifecta, which was invented by a, a guy from the Bay Area who had the handle Psyduck because he did it. He had an event out of Eudaimonia that, that created that deck. Kevin, that original version of that deck actually had winter orb. I think he had one winter orb as well. Yeah. Because it's so asymmetric with, with with Mishra's workshop, so Winter Orb is really you know we're not talking about Winter Orb, we're talking about Icy Manipulator, but it figures very prominently in the very origins of what we consider prison, and and although prison now is defined by taxing, you know, and certainly Nethervoid helped that. Before Nethervoid was printed, it was not so defined. It was mostly these other things, and mm-hmm. principally, and mostly you were just destroying lands. <laughs> Yeah, destroying lands or icy manipulator winter orb. Yeah, 
And Winter Orb, that combo, by the way, was very good well into 1996. It, it By reputation, it's hard to find confirmation of this, won basically what was effectively the 96 World Championship, Type 1 World Championship, and the biggest Origins event in the hands of Mark Justice, although deck lists are elusive. I have deck lists, but I've been told they're apocryphal. <laughs> Interesting. And we alluded to earlier in this episode when we talked about Armageddon, the Urnamgeddon decks that were very good in standard when all those cards were legal. Those card, those decks also frequently featured Icy Manipulator. Yeah. So Icy is one of the, the great... So what was your memory of seeing the the Ice Age version? <laughs> I... I was really conflicted because I had a strong affinity for Icy Manipulator. It was the sort of card that me and my friends just put in every deck because it was so universally useful, right? We were so big on, I've got my Sarah Angel or my Singer Vampire, right? And Icy just answered those kind of threats, right? And once you found a terror for their for their Sarah Angel, then the Icy could just not lock down the next thing, right? It was just so good at at, at knocking down whatever their best threat was. So we played it in everything. And I, too, was excited that it was going to get reprinted. And then I saw that art and thought, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, it, re- it really tamped down my excitement for the card being reprinted. And I still bought them and I still played them. It was affordable and, and it was still a great card. But I'm with you. It was really disappointing. And we haven't talked about any of the other subsequent arts. There's never been one as good as Alpha Beta by any stretch, even not even close. But I should point out, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, that like Hypnotic Spectre, there is a foil version of the Alpha Beta art in the form of a Friday Night Magic foil. Now, granted, this unfortunately has a new artifact frame, so it's got a a, a silver slash gray frame. But you can get a foil of the Alpha art if you want, and it's it's still the Alpha art. It still looks pretty awesome. Hmm. And like the Hippie, it's also very affordable, four or five bucks these days, because there's kind of no place for a foil old school card <laughs> in the current culture of magic and it's not a very good card in edh fair but, enough yeah um there's one other thing about icy that i wanted to point out and i didn't know it until i looked just now the gamma card has a couple of noteworthy things one it's another four mana artifact as so many of the gamma artifacts were the gamma card says tap any land that's wow it. <laughs> so it was powered up powerfully, powerfully. In fact, this card, we wouldn't even be talking about it right now if all it did was tap lands. Yeah, God. Right? The most important thing it does is taps artifacts. <laughs> then exactly. everything else is after that. <laughs> and yeah, and, and yeah, and then creature and then land. Probably, um, yeah. Probably. So the other thing I want to point out, and we were lauding the art so strongly, the the placeholder art for the gamma card is a, is a contraction or, or a, a cropping of... M.C. Escher's Three Spheres, number two, which is a recapitulation of Hand with Reflecting Sphere, where famously he's, uh, it's a drawing of himself holding a reflective sphere. And what does that look like? Well, it looks exactly like what the alpha (laughs) art for IC Manipulator became, uh, just without the prominent figure shown in the reflection. Amazing. So it's pretty clear to me that the gamma placeholder art, like we talked about with so many other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, be, just was formative in the in the the art direction for this card, and and so that's a really just aping M.C. Escher's hand holding a sphere. 
Well, our next card, Kevin, is something I'm I'm very excited about, so I'm eager to get to it. <laughs> oh, jeez. You and me both. Okay, so let's dive into Illusionary Mask. Now, strap yourselves in, because I am going to read you this alpha wording. It's a two-mana artifact. It's a poly artifact, even, which is nice. It says, X, colon, you can summon a creature face down so opponent doesn't know what it is. The X cost can be any amount of mana, even zero. It serves to hide the true casting cost of the creature, which you still have to spend. As soon as a face-down creature receives damage, deals damage, or is tapped, you must turn it face up. (laughs) There is so much to love about that alpha wording, Steve, and among all the other features of this card. Uh, I, you know, we, we've alluded to the, the ways in which cards were discontinued in Magic and the, the heading of Mystifier. Is there a better representation no. of Mystifier than this card? <laughs> this is the poster child for Mystifier. It's, it's yeah. a perfect embodiment of it. Kevin, what is your... <laughs> so many ways. What's your first memory of this card that you can recall? Well, my first memory with this card is Paul Mastriano, like, <laughs> and and the the deck that was famously called uh, you know Mask Knot, and the the way that in which you abused Illusionary Mask at that point in the vintage context was to play a Phyrexian Dreadnought face down yeah, for yeah. a single mana, <laughs> and thereby eliding its comes into play drawback, which meant that you just got to have free one mana twelve twelves yeah. and. Uh, and so there was a very dominant vintage deck, and we've already I've already talked about my experience playing against Paul at Origins and other places. And uh, so that's my first and earliest memory of this card. I never possessed one of these. I didn't even oh, see God. one of them until I saw it played in vintage a couple of years after I'd started playing the game. None of my friends ever had one of these, <laughs> and I was and it was just something that completely escaped my experience with Magic for the first couple of years that I played. Okay, so buckle up. It's story time. so this card is his significance far far beyond its immediate significance or the combination of phyrexian dreadnought so just to be clear yes so awesome phyrexian dreadnought this is the card that actually opens up a debate in vintage about errata that has consequences for time vault Mm. for flash the created Mm. the flash monster in legacy this is the card that begins it all and what happens is that in on July 23rd, 2001, Kevin, in the middle of the summer, uh, there is a very minor, minor Oracle update that basically only circulates through the judge's listserv. <laughs> That's how obscure it is. Wow. That, it's very effective yes, to, to release your Oracle updates that way. It was. It was, it was in, the, in the judge's listserv. There was a question <laughs> that arose in the judge's listserv that clarified that yes, you could play a Phyrexian Dreadnought under Illusionary Mask without having to kind of pay, so to speak, the Phyrexian Dreadnoughts comes into play cost. And that was under the radar for months. No one knew it because it had to get it had to circulate out of the judge community into the nascent type one community on Bidominia. And the first person who strategically recognized this was a man named Chris Flatten. Um, I'm probably butchering his his name, but he was a Scandinavian player, I believe Norwegian, um, who built for what was called the Type 1 Tournament of Champions online, which was a beat of you played on Apprentice. Um, for that event, he played a Mask Knot deck. And I started working with Chris to, to t- tweak and tune it. 
And my principal addition to the archetype was to add Tainted Pact <laughs> to give a little bit more <laughs> consistency. And the reason was because I realized that you could build a mana base that had the core colors and because of all the, you know, this is well before Fetchlands, but because of, you know, the Ice Age dual land, pain lands and weird lands like Gemstone Mine, you could basically build a mana base that was, you could essentially tainted pack to your four ofs, the really key cards you wanted. You would never have to stop on a land. You would never have to stop on a land and you would just get mm-hmm. the cards you wanted. And so uh, we, I rebranded kind of Tainted Mask, and I worked with him to tune out some things and, and figure out what you really wanted. And and so I played it in the next Tournament of Champions, which I think was Tournament of Champions 3 or 4, and I got all the way to the finals, and then all of a sudden it became a deck. And I became friends with Paul around the same time in college, and so I had him come over to my dorm room, and I built up the deck. I was like, you've got to see this deck. It's so much fun. And he was immediately taken with it, and that's that's how he brought it to Origins. Was we were we were that in 2002 he brought it to Origins, and I I had of course had it built along with all the viable decks in Type One physically built, but I was obsessed with Mono Blue, and I felt Mono Blue with Control Magics and Power Keg was just slightly slightly better metagame choice. Mm-hmm. So it was obviously the Mass Not deck was the most exciting deck to play, but um, and it was it was obviously a lot of fun. But there's even there's more to it than that. So so part of what happened was there were these pods of Type One players. So there was Pat Chapin and Eric Taylor who were a pod. There were the you know the communities on Beataminia, um, and er- Eric Taylor and Pat Chapin had come to a conclusion that Grow was the best deck in the format, and Chapin Grow's deck had won basically won the de facto Type One championship in two thousand and. Two, I can't remember. Yeah, it was two thousand two at at Gen Con, at Gen Con. Uh, so so Kevin at Origins, there were a number of events, like four, basically four Type One tournaments. But Gen Con had the largest. It was about a month after Type Origins had the largest Type One tournament, and there was like a six round Type One tournament, maybe sixty some players, that for all intents and purposes in the Type One community was viewed as kind of like the de facto Type One championship. There had actually been at AndCon a an official Type One Championship that had existed in the late '90s, and I think it actually came, went through 2000, but it was basically discontinued. And I don't remember the the mechanics of it, but I think what happened was roughly Wizards of the, Wizards of the Coast had purchased GenCon, including AndCon. Maybe I've got it backwards. They they bought whatever the the parent company was that in, that owned ran and ran ancon and i think gencon i think one one or two other um convention conventions and so it, it, they i think they had bought it and then they had sold it and when they sold it they part of the allure in owning it was they could host all these cool events so we'd mentioned earlier in our conversation of doomsday that origins when it owned ancon and Gen Con had these kind of like cool championship events. And Randy Bueller and his teammates had had played in one of those events, I think, in 99 or 2000 at Gen Con. So anyway, the point is that Wizards had sold off these things off and there was no longer a, an, an official Type 1 championship. And then I, I and others helped organized, you know, put pressure, organized and then pressured Wizards to ask for an, an official Type 1 Championship, which led to the 2003 Type 1 Championship at Gen Con, and then has led to the version of that ever since. 
Kevin. So, so, mm-hmm. so, um, but to get back onto the main story here, Patrick Chapin had determined that the two, in his opinion, the best deck in, in type one was Grow. Um, but Power Monolith was the next best deck. And he thought that basically Mask Knot was the deck that kept type one from being broken because he felt that Mask beat Grow, but Power Monolith beat Mask. The academy okay. the, the so there was a in his view a rock, paper, scissors dynamic to the format. Now what he was missing was that there were the emergent um well by the way, and also I have to say the Grow deck crushed my mono blue deck. I played him I played as so I ran into Patrick Chapin and I think a PTQ because remember how in Columbus we would organize type one side events? Well, I ran into mm-hmm. him and I was like, Patrick, let's play some type one. And he had his grow deck and, and I, we sat there and played like nine games and it was just a drubbing because I could never, what would happen? We don't need to talk about the mono blue versus grow matchup, but the point, point is that there were these little pods and people were contending, <laughs> contending what was best, right? Mask Knot kind of blew open a lot of the possibilities in the format. And it and this is the critical thing, which you haven't mentioned. But the illusionary mask made all creatures played under it uncounterable. Oh yeah. Under the original <laughs> errata. Which meant that if you could play this on turn one with a mox and a land, and your opponent didn't have force of will, or you could duress them and then and then get it through the force of will. Before the point is, if you could get it down before mana drain, then all you had to do was draw or tainted pact into the Phyrexian dreadnought or a hypnotic specter, which we also played in that deck. I think we had two or three hippies, and then the sideboard we had, I think Phyrexian negators. They were all uncounterable, mm-hmm. which meant that the permission side of the control decks were no longer useful. Even grows massively powerful. <laughs> You know, control magic, uh, counter magic suite, which often included, you know, misdirection, daze, foil, you know, whatever, in addition to force, just, you know, even divert, or just didn't come into play. And so, um, so illusionary mask was very, very important at that type and type one, because if you could get it down on turn one, then there's, and, and get it through a force of will, then all the other counter spells that your opponent was playing became dead. And also Oath at the time wasn't powerful enough to survive a couple of hits of Phyrexian Dreadnought. You had to Oath up out of the sideboard, Kevin, your favorite card, Wood Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> I love me a Wood Ripper. Or, or, you know, one of the fog effects. But you couldn't, like, for example, just Oath up Morphling, you know, or even the Spirit of the Night or a Chroma and expect to win. If, right, if, they all if, paled in comparison. To the 12-12 Trampler. So, so the the point is that once this be- became an established deck in Type One, a couple of things happened. The first thing was it reconfigured the metagame. It was a very exciting thing to play and see. It was kind of like the ultimate Timmy effect. The second thing was it was good against permission decks because the Illusionary Mask evaded all permission. But the third and most important thing is it opened up a debate around Errata. That in in particular, Brian Weissman at the time was kind of infuriated at it. And, and Oscar Tan and others were unhappy about it as well and felt that it needed a rata. And so uh, Illusionary Mask became the card for which all subsequent errata discussions were mounted. That was the foundation for all subsequent errata f- discussions. And so when Time Vault was errated, 
to to neuter in 2006 to neuter the flame fuselage time vault combo. It was on top of a debate that had already occurred around power level errata and, and, and functional errata and trying to preserve original functionality through different iterations of, of uh, you know, um, rules, paradigms. And so it, Illusionary Mask is really the first of what I call three critical erratas in, in Type 1. And it happened in the middle of 2001, the other two, of course, being Flash and Time Vault. So Illusionary Mask brings into play an incredibly important archetype. It revives kind of the mono black, the, the, you know, the heavy black deck which had disappeared. You know, Suicide Black. It kind of revives that heavy black deck and makes it a top tier deck. It goes away once once TNT becomes a deck, Kevin, because it just cannot compete with Goblin Welder. It can't deal with Goblin Welder. <laughs> Goblin Welder is a major issue major. for any artifact creature that doesn't kill Goblin Welder by right. definition. But there's a year year or so, year and a half, where it's a top. It's literally a top tier deck in in Type One, and it, that's a very exciting period thanks to Illusionary Mask. Now, now there is a later point in which then you can stifle stifles printed later on, and, and then that you can stifle the illusion the illusion, uh, Phyrexian Dreadnought. I don't remember whether you could. I think, I think, and I have to go back and look at the actual original errata, and I could do that in one of my older articles. Oh, and also. <laughs> Footnote, my very, very, very first magic article was called Mask, a Force in Type 1. <laughs> so nice. it launched my magic writing career as well, this card. <laughs> and I, 350, 400 articles later. <laughs> um, but but the point, I, so, so I think what happened was that it was an as-it-comes-into-play ability, and then later became a when-it-comes-into-play ability. And I think, I think Illusionary Mask obviated all as comes into plays i i don't i don't i'm not sure of that about that but i think it i think that's what it was and then at some point it, it became, did yes and then it became an as it, and then it became a wins it when it comes into play and then when it would became a win that comes into play then you could stifle it i think that's right so well the, yeah that the stifle bit was not related to the illusionary mask directly no, but, that was just related to the fact that dreadnought was eroded also right and that it, yeah. but what it did mean is there was a brief period in time in the middle aughts in legacy legacy being established in 2004 2005 ish first legacy tournaments that there was a period i think around 2006 if memory serves where where stifle knot was actually an archetype yeah, yeah. with with it might have been with counterbalance or not i'm not sure i can't remember when was stifle printed in an invasion kevin was it after it was that? It was in Scourge. Scourge. So Scourge wasn't yeah. until 2003, 2004. So anyway, there's a complex history. I'm I'm summarizing, which is something that's <laughs> written up in my chapters, and I'm not consulting them for this moment, but but I, I'm conveying the main idea that Illusionary Mask, the Arata and Illusionary Mask was an epochal event in the history of Type 1, and it had lots of kind of tributaries of effects that, that played out over ensuing years and decades. But I think one of the most disappointing things, Kevin, to kind of put a bow on all this is that at some point, Illusionary Mask... So, uh, two more points. When the Morph set came out, Illusionary Mask was re-errated. And so, in the original version, when we played mm-hmm. Mask Knot back, back in the day, Kevin, the the flipped-over Phyrexian Dreadnought and Hypnotic Specters, where they were zero-one creatures with no abilities. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Then when was it Scourge? When I think it was Scourge when Morph mechanic was introduced. All of those, all the cards played 
Oh, God. Morphs it was, it was were 2-2. Onslaught. Two, two. What'd you say? Yeah, onslaught was the second. Onslaught. There you go. Yeah. I think with Onslaught, I think they... So they think they changed Illusionary Mask again. At that yeah, point, it became less relevant. But I think what they did at that point was they said all the morphs are 2-2 two, two creatures. Am, am I not mistaken? Is that your recollection? That's right. That's right. And but it, But still, the creatures were uncounterable. It wasn't until much, much later that... That they eroded the creatures that cards could be countered under Illusionary Mask, which I think is is a tragedy that they have it that way today. <laughs> yeah, and I think in support of what you just said, we should probably read the Oracle text as it stands today, which is shares a lot but is significantly different. The Oracle text is X colon. You may choose a creature card in your hand whose mana cost could be paid by some amount of or all the mana you spent on X. If you do, you may cast that card face down as a 2-2 creature spell without paying its mana cost. If the creature that spell becomes, becomes as it resolves has not been turned face up and would assign or deal damage, be dealt damage, or become tapped, instead it's turned face up and assigns damage or deals damage or is dealt damage or becomes tapped. Activate this ability only at a time you could cast a sorcery. The only so it thing has that, a lot of DNA, but it's a far it's, cry from the original. <laughs> that it's it's frustrating, honestly. Hearing it you really read is. the Oracle text just gives me heartburn. Actually, it, it gives me <laughs> it gives me a migraine. Is what it does because there's nowhere in the text where it says the creature is a two-two creature spell. Face down. That's right. That's so, completely um, made up. Well, to be fair, there's also nowhere in the text that describes what the creature is at all, except face down. Yes. So what? Uh, what would you wish they had done by today's standards? So, so here's the thing. Because under the rule, under the card text, it flips over whenever it does anything relevant, right? Whenever it mm-hmm. receives damage, deals damage, is targeted or tapped or whatever, it flips. I think that it should be just a zero one. I think okay. at least a zero one is defensible in the sense we'll give it the minimal possible characteristics, right? Yeah. Whereas two two, I understand that the two two element is to make it comport with and accord with the general rule that morph creatures are two twos. But what yeah. you've effectively done is grafted text into a card that has no textual basis whatsoever. <laughs> so as between those two those two possibilities, I think I prefer the original solution. Yeah. I mean the alternative the the alternative is just to say that it's it's undefined and ambiguous, but that's that's obviously unacceptable as well. Until you know. It is. Um it is. the the text in the Alpha Rules League, Alpha League is the the text clarifications is are as follows. One, activating illusionary mask as part of summoning a creature can and only must be used when you summon a creature normally during your main phase. So I guess that's I guess that's helpful because well and under the 90 under the 2001 rule ruling that was part of the ruling you had to do it you had to do it basically anytime you could do a sorcery which is yeah. what the oracle text says but it's not what the actual text of the card says yeah and there's a lot of there's a, you could put a lot of weight on the word summon in yes. the original text. But I would it says you can summon a creature. I mean, part of which... the fun of Alpha is giving these cards a maximalist interpretation for powering them up, <laughs> right? I mean, right? I'm with I mean, you. I think that I'm that would you. actually make this card useful in Alpha. 
is if you could just then summon a card on your opponent's turn. That would be incredibly Absolutely. cool. It um, would be very powerful, and it would it would be the precursor to Flash, which, as yes. we know, is a pretty healthy mechanic. Or Elvish, considered. El- Elvish Piper. There's all sorts of effects that oh, allow yeah, you to too. do that. Okay, yes. the second yes. qualification, uh, clarification. The mana spent on the creature being summoned must be noted somewhere. Dice, a note, etc. Where both players can clearly <laughs> see how many and what types of mana was used to summon the creature. That's... All right. I, I don't that's, know. That's just bookkeeping, though. That's yeah. not interesting. No. Three. The mana spent summoning the creature has to be, at a minimum, the amount and types needed to, to summon the creature normally. Illusionary Mass does not allow a play, player to cast a creature spell in a, using inappropriate mana types or quantities to summon any creature. <laughs> Noting the t- quantity of types and mana used is recommended. Isn't that basically what the text says? Is that really a clarification? Yeah. No, it's really not. I mean, the, the the it is basically what the text says. the 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 um the alpha text says uh, can be any amount of mana serves to hide the true cost of the creature, which you still have to spend. So yes, the the alpha text <laughs> does a decent job of conveying the fact that you can't cheat the cost of the creature. And I would argue further to that, it makes the card fun and interesting from an uh, asymmetric information standpoint. Because one of the cool things that uh, the mask decks got to do was to pay, was to put one BB into the thing, yes, <laughs> and then put a dreadnought face yes, down, but I your opponent that. had to yes. respect that it was a hippie, yep. right? <laughs> that was one of the greatest things about the deck was actually having different different creatures in the deck, and you got to have fun with the asymmetric information. So I don't want to go too down the kind of like the charms rabbit hole here, Kevin. But if you were a league authority, how would you resolve the ambiguities in this card? What what do you think is the textual, best textual interpretation of this card? I'll give you my opinion after you go. I put a fair amount of weight into the word summon. Summon is printed on creature cards for a reason, right? It carries a lot of weight in my eyes. Um, and I'd have to, I'm not expert in the alpha rules like you are, uh, in terms of what's printed in the book, but I feel like the word summon is a, is a red flag to me. So I'm of the opinion that the way this card was written has, there's a strong indication for me that you were actually still casting, casting. the creature spell. Yeah. I, I, there's a reason why creatures in alpha are called summons. Like, so it's, it's a verb and a noun of course, but whatever. Anything else? Uh, the only other thing that that really concerns me is basically the notion that the ty- the nature of the creature statistics are completely undefined. Yes, and so I'm inclined to agree with you that the most logical interpretation is it should be a zero one. Well, that's the, the most minimum. parsimonious, you know. Yeah, I mean, the alternative is just saying it's it's undefined until it matters, and then we'll we'll figure out what it is. But the the problem with that's, that is that's broken though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the problem then is what, what do you do with Meekstone and things like that. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you have to I, choose something. I guess Meekstone is not doesn't matter because if you would attack with it, then it would flip. But other things matter, like um, uh, shoot, what's a good example? Earthquake, uh, tackle, tackle, maggot. Earthquake. No, because earthquakes oh. subsumed under dealing damage. Oh yeah, things that put counters on creatures are where it really starts to matter. Ah, yeah. Well, in alpha, that okay. might not matter then. In the alpha context. in alpha it might not matter, but there's got to be there's got to be an example I'm not thinking of. Almost everything in alpha revolves around damage, right? <laughs> and, and or targeting. I don't well, think the there's text... any Meekstone's a good example, but another one is um, is um, Island Sanctuary, right? Can a face down creature uh, attack on, through an Island Sanctuary? Good point. You know, you have to kind of resolve that kind or, of. Issue. Or, or you want to 
I guess, to determine whether it can block. But once it's blocked, once you declare it as a blocker, I assume it, fl- it flips up. So Yeah, that creates that creates issues. It, that's why the, the current text says, if you're about to do something, then turn it face up and still do that thing. That's it's, I'm not sure that you've identified an instrument. Yeah, I, so here's... So let's. Uh, there are four possible ambiguities that I would resolve. The first is the question around: is it is it is it basically put into play like through Elvis Piper or a sneak attack, mm-hmm. or is it actually a or does summon, it go on the stack? A, yes, yeah. exactly. There's no stack, obviously, but well, are you casting it? Right. The second ambiguity <laughs> is what is the nature of the creature. The third is ambiguity is precisely when does it flip over? Um, yeah. Because there are circumstances that are not covered by the actual text that you would probably want it to be. Need it <laughs> yeah. to be it, well. And this, the Elvic card uses the phrase "as soon as," which in modern <laughs> parlance we would translate into just the word "when," right? It yeah. would be a trigger. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it's a trigger produces other difficulties and creates impossible situations, like, um, well, like blocking. You well, know, like if you've got a face down flyer, are you allowed to block a creature with flying? That's oh, that's something God. that has to be you, resolved. No, here's right? another example, Kevin. Uh, you, your opponent casts unsummon on the creature. You have to check to see if it has bl- pro blue. Now, I don't think there's any uh, pro blue creatures in in the format, but that's an ex- no. That's but the, the well, that extends to you can reverse that with like swords to plowshares. If you have a face down, right? Um, what black yeah. knight? So I mean, yeah. In, it's not difficult to resolve in the modern parlance, but in the strictly alpha context, it is tricky. So and then the third is so so here's how I would resolve it. Uh, so this the word summon you're you're absolutely correct has additional meaning in alpha. But yeah. the word summon is actually most powerfully in my opinion associated with creature as a creature type. So you know all the creatures they say summon x. They don't say creature card. They say their summon is basically the card type. Yeah. So it's you're, it's both as you well, say a verb and a noun. But I yeah. think that the, the more prominent use of the word summon is more in the noun sense than the verb sense. And so I I think because this is an activated ability of a creature of an artifact, I think I would have it not go on the it goes on the stack, but doesn't go on the stack in the sense that you can counter it. And yeah, the ability does. The ability yeah. does. Because and I want to go back to countering, um there's a section in the Alpha rulebook that talks about this. Hold on. Yeah, destroyed, counter, discarded, countered, or removed cards. If a spell is countered as it is being cast, it too goes to the graveyard without having its effect. I would argue that in this case, the summoning occurs not as a casting, because you're not actually, but as a an, an ability, an activated ability, or a fast effect yeah. in the language of revised. Does does casting a creature in the alpha rulebook codify the word summon as the verb that is bringing a creature from your hand into play. Like, is that called summoning in the rulebook? We use, I use it anecdotally that way, but I'm not sure if it really, the rules really support that. Well, it, so it says in, in their spell types, there are six different types of spells. It says there are artifacts, enchantments, creature summonings, instants, interrupts, and sorceries. So <laughs> that it calls it a summoning. That's what I'm saying. It's a card. <laughs> it's basically a card type, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I'm looking, it says summoning, summoning spells, which can only be cast during the main phase of your turn, bring creatures into play. A creature cannot attack or use a special ability that would tap until you begin a turn with it in play. So it's, Okay, that's really strongly using the noun form. Yes. Which which brings which gives more weight to your position that's than mine. What, that's look, it's all a matter of interpretation, but that's yeah. that's the 
That's the interpretation I would give to it. The second in ambiguity is I believe that you can activate this. A poly artifact can be used any time. I believe that you could you should be able to use this any time. Yeah, so the elf, sorry, the Oracle text says activate this ability only anytime you could cast a sorcery, sorcery which is not supported which, by the text. Well, the only way that's supported by the text is if you take my interpretation right, and use yeah. the the verb form of summon, which carries the baggage of only when the stack is empty on your main. You, you know right? how we would so, resolve this? We resolve this by yeah. asking Richard Carfield. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, they, well. There's another way we could resolve it, and I, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. But there's another way we could, we could resolve it, which is not helpful, and that is to look at gamma. <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> the card illusionary mask in gamma is an instant that costs a single blue and says swap two attacking creatures after defense has been chosen. God, so it's like a camouflage. <laughs> I mean, a, a it's like a false orders. Yeah, there you uh, go. yeah. So. That's hilarious. I didn't know it until just now, but Illusionary Mask isn't even an artifact in Gamma, and it doesn't have this effect at all. It's a completely different card, and was replacing, yeah, another blue alternative to messing with creature combat attacking and blocking. Well, remember also there was Dave Howell, who, like Joel Mick, were one of the early playtesters, his FAQ from November 1994. And Mm. I don't believe... Let me pull it up. I don't believe his FAQ has any... (laughs) relevant information for us on I'm, let me just do a search real quick <laughs> on illusionary mask nope it's not the word mask is not even mentioned in his faq so so just to just to go back to my summary i would interpret this as number one that it, the it's an activated ability like elvish piper it does not go it, the ability goes on the stack but the creature spell does not secondly i would ha- allow you to activate it any time Third, I think I would have either the most minimal, you know, minimalist characteristics of the creature or potentially try and eroute it so that the creature characteristics are undefined until some point at which you actually have to have to determine what they are. But I think I would probably go the zero one. The other thing that's weird about this is it just says you flip it its face up as soon as it receives damage, deals damage, or is tapped. But it doesn't say anything about targeted. Like, what if you try and jace the mind sculptor, the flip, you know, the creature? <laughs> now, obviously, under Oracle text, that's resolved because it says, as soon as it would deal damage, be dealt damage, become tapped. Wait, no, the Oracle text does not say whenever it's targeted. The Oracle text does not mention targeted. I can't believe I didn't notice that until you said it just now. That is inexplicable to me. It's broken. So now, it's Oracle text is broken. It's actually it's actually broken. So now you can actually terror a white knight. <laughs> oh my god. You can terror a white knight that is face down under a mask because no part of that exchange causes it to be turned up and become a white knight. Oh my god, Kevin. That's really fascinating. I don't know why I alighted that before just now. That's fantastic. Um, there's another ambiguity within the alpha context I can think of, and that is what if you have a drudge skeleton and... Oh, jeez. So help me out, Steve. There's um, Oh, my God. Oh, it's, it's white knight imbalance. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. If you have a white knight and your opponent balances... Yeah. If you have a face-down white knight and, you, and your opponent balances, the way I'm reading this card, um, it, it should go to the graveyard. Because no part of balance is involved in the alpha text. If, Fate, you know, if you're using the damage textual, or tapping, oh my god, that's true. Well, fortunately, under 
real magic, not alpha magic, that's not a problem. No, that's not a problem granted. because <laughs> a black knight isn't protected from balance. In, in granted, granted. But under alpha, that does appear to be the under both the alpha league rules and alpha just alpha text that does appear to be the case. Yeah, that's fascinating. Same with Wrath of God in the same. There was something else right. I was going to point out. Um, oh, how about Wrath of God plus regeneration? So yes, that's what I was going to talk. <laughs> I would think I was going to talk about regeneration. Yeah, because I mean, Wrath is a bad example because in the in the context of Alpha Wrath, it specifically reads cannot regenerate. So that's a bad example. Is there another untargeted well, yeah. destruction effect well, in Alpha? Well, the, so a couple things. One is that um, you know, I mean, there's okay, is dealt damage. The thing is, yeah, deal damage. Untargeted destruction besides wrath and balance. Um, chaos orb. Okay. Well, well, uh. So what if you have a face down drudge skeleton and I chaos orb it? God. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, this is a this is a a is this an is this a replacement ability? The, the flipping over? What, what do you call that? Yes, it's a okay. replacement. So it says if something would happen, instead it turns face up and then that thing happens. That is a, a, okay. a replacement ability. So if you have a creature with a regeneration and I place Sudden Shock on your Drudge Skeletons, it will flip over according as the part of the replacement ability, but you will have no opportunity to regenerate. You're talking about in, in current rules? Yes, under current rules. Yeah. Well, of course you're talking about it. You're talking about Sudden Shock. Yes, what you said is correct. The Sudden Shock um, dealing damage will cause the creature to turn face up and then receive its damage and die. And because it's Sudden Shock, I wouldn't be able to respond with a Regeneration Shield. No, you're right. There's there's kind of no context in which I would be able to regenerate it beforehand. Now, if I was somehow able to regenerate it before you cast Sudden Shock yeah. without turning it face <laughs> yeah, up, if like if I cast some spell... Yeah, if I pass some spell, well, I could just cast Death Ward on it, right? Yeah. Since that wouldn't cause it to turn face up. Yeah, if I cast Death Ward on my face down regenerator, <laughs> the fact that it's a regenerator ceases to matter. But then your sudden shock would cause it to turn face up, and then it would regenerate. Yeah. Wow. Um, th- there's there's so much going on with Illusionary Mask from a historical perspective and a rules perspective. The card is beautiful. It's uh, it's very similar to Icy Manipulator in in that sense, except that it doesn't have quite the breadth of impact on tournament magic, you know, that Icy <laughs> yeah. Manipulator does. Yeah, but at the same time, it shares a lot in common with Icy, well, including the fact that the art is just magical. Well, there was a, a two three year period in Type One where this is one of the most prominent cards in the format, and mm-hmm. so you know, it obviously was a huge rules headache at the time. But it actually wasn't that bad. I think everything was fairly easily resolved. The artwork, by the yeah, way, we... perfectly encapsulates the cookie mystery <laughs> nature of the card. Um, it's totally true. I, one other thing uh, for old school players, before you, you chime in, this card is enormously yeah. powerful in old school 96. I played with it in oh. a local old school 96 environment. And I think it's actually just, you, you can't play old school 96 with unrestricted demonic consultation because of this deck. Because between oh, okay. Limduel's Vault and this card, and the, you know, and Vamp, Vamp, uh, Vamp Tutor isn't quite legal, but Mist- it's just... It, Too easy to it's, assemble? With Force of Will and Dark Ritual and Hippies, it's just absurd. Like, I, could, <laughs> I, could, I assembled this with... In Brainstorms, by the way, and Demonic Consultation are, in, are unbelievably good together. It's just... this. It was, like, super consistent. So this is if, I, if anyone ever wants to play old school '96, be aware this is enormously powerful in that environment and quite fun. I also want to add one other historical note, and that is there is an entirely other mask deck from 2003 
that is very important historically. Oh yes, and go, and flies under the radar <laughs> because it it very narrowly lost Vintage Champs in two thousand three. Yeah, the deck is called Venger Mask, and in the hands of I mean, many people were playing it at the time, but in the hands of Shane Stutes, he got second place and lost to the first official Vintage Champ. You know, from a Gen Con context uh, in two thousand three, Carl Winters, and the. The he was Venger using Mask survival is, to, find, is an, to find the <laughs> yeah, is and, an and then even the cooler to speed it yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> it's an even cooler mechanically speaking deck than than the the more efficient uh, blue black tainted mask, mask deck. Yeah, yeah. So the Venger Mask deck is, as you just said, a survival of the fittest deck. In addition to being an illusionary mask deck, but it's also very importantly a Volras Shapeshifter deck. Oh, which is now, Volras so Shapeshifter. Cool. Yeah, oh. is a is a one UU Shapeshifter. It says as long as the top card of your graveyard is a creature, Volras Shapeshifter is a copy of that card, except it has its own abilities and it has an activated ability, which is two colon choose and discard a card. So you can start with just a Shapeshifter and a Dreadnought in, in your hand. And the shapeshifter's activated ability lets you just discard the dreadnought, which becomes makes the shapeshifter a twelve twelve, and it's not coming into play, assuming it you didn't also have a dreadnought on top of your graveyard when you cast it. So the Venger Mask deck was a very resilient multiple threat in answer deck. There was also a force of will deck, naturally. And it had a toolbox of creatures like your Gilded Drakes and your Quirion Rangers and Squee and Tradewind Rider. Like it did it had a toolbox, including fun in the sideboard. So it was really resilient. It could answer hate, and it could get uh, dreadnoughts into play in a number of different avenues. Kevin, and at, it was very good at the time. Kevin, for those who are historical completists, or maybe didn't play Type One but played competitive formats at the time, you know, more like professional mm-hmm. formats, that was an iteration of the full English breakfast deck, which, <laughs> oh, yeah. which was like what was it considered like one of the most rules complicated decks of all time because it dealt with That's layers. Right. <laughs> Volrath right. shapeshifter and it had two frex and, 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 requ- and to properly execute you had to understand all the rules but also you had to time a whole bunch of activated abilities properly to get yes uh, to get the effect you wanted oh full english breakfast was so cool so the thing about full english breakfast was well let me read the deck list real quick just to quickly so okay. this is from 2002 four birds of paradise four wall of roots two quarian ranger four four volrath shapeshifter three treadwind rider two frexian dreadnoughts and then th- these are all singletons Elvish Lyrist, Octavia Orangutan, Bottle Gnomes, Gilded Drake, Silver, Sliver Queen, Morphling, Rhea Dawnbringer, Flowstone Hellion, Squee Goblin Nabob, and then Counter Magic, Land, and Survival of the Fittest. <laughs> the most important card in that whole list, that in addition or in contrast to Venger Mask, is the card Flowstone Hellion. <laughs> Flowstone Hellion is a red creature that has the activated ability zero colon. Flowstone Hellion gets plus zero, plus one, minus one until end of turn. So the thing that you do, oh, it has haste. So the thing that you do is you, <laughs> I know, right? You get a Volrath Shapeshifter and a Survival of the Fittest into play. That's that's the start of the combo. And then, depending on how much mana you've got, you have a lot of flexibility, but the goal for you to, to do is to turn your Volrath Shapeshifter into a Flowstone Hellion. It has haste, so you attack with it. <laughs> then you activate Flowstone Hellion's zero mana ability, giving it plus one, minus one. You activate it ten times. While those are abilities are on the stack, you activate either <laughs> Volrath Shapeshifter or Survival of the Fittest to put a Phyrexian Dreadnought into your graveyard. And then you let all those abilities resolve, giving your twelve twelve Phyrexian <laughs> Dreadnought plus ten minus ten, making it making it yeah. Well, it's already yeah, attacking, yeah. making it a twenty two 
two creature and then your creature and then and it's a trampler a 22-2 trampler which then your opponent has to deal with in terms of blocking and you can make the blocking even more difficult <laughs> if in between the hellion activations you also turn it into a morphling briefly uh to make it flying for example and there's other tricks you can play with other uh, noteworthy creatures in the in the main deck or the sideboard too to have other effects intervening. And you can also use Morphling during the combo to make it untargetable if your opponent tries to interact uh, from a from a uh, targeted removal standpoint. Like you can turn it into a Hellion, put all those abilities on the stack, turn it into a Morphling, and give it Shroud and Flying, and then turn it into a Dreadnought. Let all those abilities resolve. So it has very resilient depending on how much mana you had. Yeah, full English breakfast was an awesome <laughs> thing, a beautiful thing to behold, especially in the hands of uh, players who really know how to maximize it. Brilliant. And also, how cool is a deck that has Sliver Queen, Rhea Dawnbringer, and Morphling in the same deck? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But those were the other ways you could get value and make, play the long game as well. But basically, he fused Mask and, and you know multiple combos into the same deck, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. And then you got Incarnations, yeah. which were like... I guess I think he played with incarnations, which you know gave the version that Shane had. I don't think did. actually had any. He didn't have a wonder, but certain variants of the deck definitely had wonder at different points. Yeah, which is just a, another way of kind of giving you the flowstone hellion abilities. You know the yeah with with uh, what's the one that gives you haste? The incarnation anger. Anger. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool times. All brought Ooh. on by illusionary mask. Illusionary mask is. <laughs> I don't know. It it's feel, so it, cool. I think it was one of the turning points, actually, in, in Type 1, when things became really interesting, you know. So. Yeah, and, and for me, it's also emblematic of the attention that we would get as a community from Wizards, right? Yeah, the lack for of... All the, the, well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But for all the errata reasons that you elucidated, it's it's emblematic along with Time Vault for that attention and the interaction of the community and the attention that the format got. So, so things that we could petition wizards to fix here. Number one, <laughs> it's broken because it needs to be, it needs to say something when targeted, right? Well, uh, I'm not convinced that that makes it broken. It just makes a whole lot of interactions unintuitive. Yeah. Like, I guess is what I would say. It doesn't, it doesn't actually break anything. That, the fact that you can swords to plowshare as a white knight. Yeah. I, I mean, you mean a black knight. Um, I'm in a black knight. Yeah, yes. or 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 sword something that has hexproof or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or shroud. Shroud. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess. I guess. Yeah. It I, leads to some maybe unintuitive interactions, but I don't think you know it's what? actually broken. It's just surprising. You know I actually <laughs> think, if I'm not mistaken, I think under the 2001 errata, it also said that you could. I think it allowed the controller to flip it up at any time they wanted. They had priority for whatever reason. Not just... Oh, really? I think. I didn't remember that. I don't want to be held to account for that interpretation, but I think that might have been the case as a way of, as a way of you know, allowing the controller to get maximum utility out of those kinds of things. Um, it's interesting, too, that um, it's pretty obvious that the conditions for flipping the creature in the alpha wording were intended to encompass all the ways in which creatures um, are involved in combat, right? So the three things it lists are receive damage, deal damage, or become tapped, right? Yeah. Now, granted, that also encompasses things like earthquake and dealing and receiving damage, but the point is it's m- mainly focused on combat. If you get into combat with this thing, it, you're meant to have to reveal the creature. But yeah. in a very real way, that's not actually comprehensive. Now, unfortunately, it's not possible in the alpha context alone, but... 
all you have to do is add one or two more sets to get to the point where you could have a face down creature that also has vigilance and not because it has inherently has vigilant, but some other external effect is giving it vigilance. Mm-hmm. And in that case, with a face down creature, you could actually attack your opponent and, and, and nothing would happen. Like <laughs> you could just attack your opponent with this face down creature. Cause it's not becoming tapped. And it's not dealing damage, because according to our interpretation, it's a 0-1, right? So you could just successfully attack with a 0-1 vigilant creature and nothing would happen, (laughs) which I find hilarious. It would just stay face down and you'd go about your business. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, you could layer on other effects that trigger on the attack, too. If you had an effect that said your creatures have vigilance and when they attack, something happens, those effects would happen and the creature would still just stay face down, right? (laughs) That's true. It's it's amazing. Once you... (laughs) Once you limit the flipping up to just attacking, being tapped, or dealing damage, does it say blocking too? No, not blocking. Just dealing wow. or receiving damage or becoming tapped. Well, yeah. dealing damage, is zero one doesn't deal damage, so there's a real ambiguity exactly. there. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making it zero one is actually hugely significant because then you could block without ever flipping it up. But it would, it would be revealed when it goes to the graveyard, though. But I suppose if you're blocking a zero one with it, yeah. then it won't. <laughs> well, in the in in the it's not again. It's not possible to attack with a creature this way in the alpha context because there's no blanket vigilance granting. Yeah. So it's not possible to do it that way. But you could block. Sure, your opponent. You could have. Um, yeah, you could have this face down creature that's a zero one, and your opponent could attack you with a frozen shade, and then not pump. Yep, and you could just block, yep. and you'd have two zero ones involved in combat, and you nothing would happen. So, so Kevin, I want to get back to what we think should be fixed on this. <laughs> I think two thousand nine, though it's hard to know because we don't have like you know <laughs> a clear record of every previous errata on on you know the Oracle, <laughs> but I think two thousand nine is when it was last errata, and um, I think my biggest objection is the fact that it's counterable. I, I, I look. I just think that that's the least implausible interpretation of this card. There's no in his history. If 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 the Wizards rules, if Wizards of the Coast rules teams can find me a case where this was actually ruled to work that way, then they would have precedent to establish that was the functionality. But I yeah. don't think the design of this card, the functionality, and I, and I think you have to use a lot of weight on the word summon to make that interpretation. You, you and also, it creates such a weird, awkward. You know, um, text, right? Because then you have to create all this text that says, if the creature become that be, that the spell becomes as it resolves, like, <laughs> I mean, all this stuff. I don't know. I, I just think, um, <laughs> you know, it, I just think that um, that's my biggest objection to the text. But I also think that I think, especially in alpha, this should just be ruled that you can activate on your opponent's turn. Why not make it more fun? You know, so <laughs> well, and I also uh, there's no firm answer one way or the other, and I'm I'm sympathetic to what you're trying to get at here. It is more fun that way. I would also say that from a top down perspective, what is this card trying to do? I would argue that its goal is not to make creatures uncounterable or give them flash. Its goal is to obscure their identity, right? Yes. And so, from a top down standpoint. I'm I'm not as it, I'm, I don't feel as vehemently as you do that the creature should be uncounterable and have flash. I just feel like this is a way for you to summon a creature 
and I'm using summon in my interpretation, uh, a way to summon a creature and obscure its identity. But, that's a, that's its primary goal. And so from a from a design intent standpoint, that's how I read it, right? But that's not compelling or, or yeah, you know, ironclad. But, but Kevin, ca- cards, magic cards, magic cards have multiple uses. And to say like this is the oh, intent yeah. of the card is is a simple concept. I think belies the nature. The magic cards have primary uses, secondary uses, tertiary uses. I mean, we just spent a while talking about oh, how yeah. oh, how yeah. how healing solve originally <laughs> was just gain life, and then actually its its <laughs> primary you know main functionality main function is was tacked on right. Yeah. So I. I would be very careful about saying that's the primary purpose of the card. I think, I think that that's most consistent with being a, an artifact activate ability. I mean, what other? Let me ask you this: Out of the universe of artifacts with activate abilities, how many in the Magic card pool put actually put spells on the stack? Which I know that there are some versus those mm-hmm. that just put cards into play. So like Quicksilver Amulet, right, puts yeah. creatures directly into play. Versus... It definitely favors putting them into exactly. play. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now obviously yeah, that's, that's true, a... but that's also that's not terribly reasoning. compelling given that this is the yeah, this, yeah. this is the only card in Alpha that does this, so that's but yeah, but it that's does speak, right? it does speak But at the same time well, just want to you say mentioned it's... earlier that w- one way to, to resolve this would be to ask Richard Garfield. Yeah. And that's a pure appeal to design intent, right? Yes, and and or original ruled functionality to find out just how was well, this we, card ruled to to work and does anyone well, I know? Mean, we've got all the rulings. You know what? I'm going to ask Joel Nick. No, I'm going to I'm going to no, ask Joel Nick. We don't have the original original rulings, so we don't have that. But we have a whole bunch of other rulings that happened since who then. There. I'm going to ask Joel Nick. I know. I know. <laughs> my, my point is, is that one of the ways that we resolve these things is to ask Richard Garfield, and that is a pure intent. That is a pure appeal to design intent. That's all. There's no one way that is correct. Absolutely, there isn't one, and it's an unknowable thing at this point. Unknowable in the sense that, unless Richard Garfield specifically remembers if he had if he had a plan for this thing, then I guess we know that much. But even that is not open and shut, right? That's not the the last possible word. And the fact that this card was originally a blue instant that just monkeyed with combat is is laughable. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. It just adds to the the mystique and the problem that we have <laughs> with evaluating it. Totally agree. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays.